Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com Yeah, hold up, shorty. Hold up, let me, let me answer this. Chill. Chill. Alright. Yo, Hello? As the decade draws to a close, humans' relationship with technology is more dependent and more interwoven into our daily lives than ever. But our comfort with that technology and the private data it collects and shares about our lives may be changing. That is especially true with smartphones, even as their growth has soared. Just over a third of American adults owned one in 2010. Now, more than 80% do. William Brangham is back with a look at a new investigative series about how far that data can be tracked and to what end. Your smartphone is probably sending your precise location to companies right now. That's the first sentence in one of a series of investigative stories by the New York Times that reveals just how often our phones track our whereabouts and how many largely unknown companies capture all that data. Here's just one of the remarkable examples in the series. One data set of 12 million cell phones across several major cities was leaked to the New York Times. These are all the smartphone hits around Central Park in New York City. That one dot there is just one phone. And here are all the places that phone went within a certain period of time. Stitch those locations together and you reveal a map of a person's daily life. The Time series is called One Nation Tracked, and it examines the serious implications for personal privacy, for free speech, and for national security. Charlie Warzel is one of the reporters on this series, and he joins me now. Uh, this was such a revelatory piece of reporting. I think all of us know on some level that our privacy has been given up, but to see it in this kind of granular detail was pretty amazing. And I do think 
on some level, people assume that their phones, when they're using something like a Google Maps or something like that, that it does follow where they go. But you're reporting that there are so many other ways that our phones can track us. That's exactly right. Uh, there are certain services that collect location data that you consent to every day, and, and you're very aware of exactly what's happening uh, and, and why it's happening. Turn-by-turn turn directions, for example, you obviously need that GPS data. You need to share that location, and you're getting a service that's very helpful and handy in, in, in return. Um, but there are plenty of apps out there uh, that uh, collect this data for purposes where it's not quite clear you necessarily need them. And then they have secondary businesses that aren't fully disclosed. Uh, they may be buried in you know those long terms of service agreements, um, but uh, it's not exactly clear to the user. And they're, they have the secondary business selling this location data to other third parties who then repackage and sell it. And once that information is gone, uh, it's gone for good. You can't you can't get it back. And those companies, these, these middlemen, so to speak, of location data, uh, they can be you know, big trusted companies or very small startups with security that we don't know and uh, employees who, you know, it's not clear if they have the right permission structure or not to view your information. And are there rules that govern this kind of monitoring? I mean, I think it's one thing if, if, if some company has got this collected, but we would assume there's theoretically some rules about how quickly they have to purge it, what they can and can't do with it. I mean, what are the ground rules? We kept hearing this one phrase, you know, it's the Wild West uh, still. You know, the online advertising industry is still very young. It has grown a, a, exponentially over the course of this past decade. And it is such a complex system that people who work in it don't actually really understand how the whole thing works, they say. You know, we understand what we do, and we know maybe where it goes, but we have no idea where the information goes after that. So that's a system by design. Like, this is a, a system that is made purposefully to be difficult to regulate, for consumers to understand, for even the participants in the system to understand. They will say that, you know, this, this location data, because it's technically anonymized, it's, you know, um, doesn't contain a name or an address on it. But our investigation shows it's very easy to de-anonymize this data for most people. And, uh, and, and so, you know, the, the rules don't quite fit with uh, the sort of sneaky loopholes that this industry has created. Devil's advocate question, what do I really care if a company is gathering the, the back and forths of my mundane life? I go to work, I go home, I go to my kid's school, I go to the grocery store. I mean, what are they really learning that I would be worried about? That argument gets, gets put out a lot. I, I would say that, that first and foremost, uh, we have to start thinking about privacy as a collective concern, as a society. Uh, this is, you know, it's not just your privacy when you're in a public place and you're broadcasting your location. Uh, if you're at a protest, say, um, and, you know, you, you could be broadcasting your location in a way that links you to somebody who really has a lot to lose if they are, are exposed there. Um, when, when you have such a, a large swath of surveillance, it starts to interact in ways that you wouldn't necessarily know. Um, you know, you bringing your phone to a place of worship, uh, it, that's, a, that's a data point. And if information like this is being surveilled uh, or if it leaks, you know, you're associated with that. Um, the other thing, too, is that, you know, th- th- this ends up being sort of a corrosive mentality. We sort of think um, that, that we deserve this. You know, we built this whole... 
uh, you know, surveillance capitalism system not too long ago, and and we have a chance to actually uh, do something about it. We can govern how this works. We don't have to just accept what larger companies tell us. You also detail in another story in the series that there are some real national security implications about this. I mean, you saw from this one data set phones pinging all over the White House, phones pinging all over the Pentagon. Can you tell us a little bit more about the one specific vignette that you drill into? We, uh, early on in our reportings, uh, decided to look at uh, Mar-a-Lago, Donald Trump's uh, quote-unquote winter White House in in Palm Beach. And uh, it immediately became clear when we isolated some of the devices that they were moving to uh, the uh, Trump golf course there and then to one of his other properties. Um, And when we compared that with the president's public schedule, we realized that these were these sort of exact movements. Uh, so we kind of zoomed out on, on the device and were able to actually see that that that, that person was a, uh, uh, believed to be a Secret Service agent. And, you know, we were able to follow that person to their home. We were able from there to understand who that person's spouse was, uh, you know, see trips to a school, per se, uh, which was, you know, um, supposedly dropping off their child, things that you know, no normal person should be able to see, especially, uh, you know, a journalist uh, 3,000 miles away. A, a Secret Service agent who is not securing the device, is not thinking about the way in which, you know, they might be tracked, is, is actually giving up the location of, of the President of the United States. For the people who are troubled by this and are genuinely alarmed, as I am by your reporting, what are, are there things that we can all do collectively to protect our own personal phones? Yes, uh, there are some things, but I think it's really important. And uh, we've, uh, on the New York Times website, published a a list of things that you can do to protect yourself. It's in the larger package of this, and I hope people will go uh, look at it and and take some of the steps. But one of the the biggest things to remember about this is that um, until we have some real regulations and some real uh, enforcement, and and that's enforced transparency in this industry, that's enforced disclosure of where this information is going, uh, you know, we're not going to be rid of this because uh, you can't fully opt out of this without opting out of, you know, modern society, without throwing your phone out the, out the window and into the ocean. So I think more than anything, what we're hoping from this piece is that people understand what's on the other side of this trade-off. You know, you get those directions, you get that coupon, you get that personalized news alert, but you're giving something up. You're giving up a piece of yourself when you do this. And so if people understand that, um, that's actually a really huge step in having this conversation and figuring out the norms around it. All right. The series is called One Nation Tracked. Charlie Warzel of The New York Times. Thank you very much. White man out there getting Nobel Prizes and doing business deals in the fraternities. Niggas jumping up and down with candy canes and doing all kinds of silly shit with their hands. Jamal, you want, do you want to talk about this Navy thing? I'm not quite sure what happened at the Naval Academy. Yeah, so what was it last week? Last weekend, the the arm the Army Navy game. You know, every year they you know that's a huge game. Uh, ESPN covered it. Uh, so I forget who it was, but ESPN did a spot where um, they have their announcer in the middle of the cadets, and while he's you know saying whatever he's saying, the cadets are are making these upside down uh, okay signs gestures with their hands and, fing- and fingers, um, which anti-hate groups have, have, have uh, classified as hate speech or a, a 
or a hate gesture or a hate signal. Um, but it's also known, you know, by some people as a as a game that, that mm. kids play where, you know, they, if you if you put it below your waist and someone sees it, they punch you in the arm or something. I never I was never privy to that mm. game growing up. So I don't Me know. I've never heard of that game, honestly, it's cool. but they call it the circle game. Right. Um, so but but it's been, you know, it's it's been used by, uh, you know, white supremacy groups, white supremacist groups. Um, you know, as a, as a signal of hate, and they flashed it in different places. Uh, uh, you know, some some Nazi, some Nazis who've been in, who've been you know arrested in the past have, have flashed it to to media and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. So it's definitely you know some people definitely use it as as a white supremacy signal, mm-hmm. right? And it's also been linked to um, Stephen Miller, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who works mm-hmm. who works in the White House. Right. Um, right. So, um, so the, you know, these white cadets were, were flashing these signs, laughing and stuff. Um, and you know, people on people saw it, and, it, and it, on Twitter, it kind of blew up. Where you know, people were questioning it, like, "What's what's going on here?" Um, so it became it became a story. USA Today picked it up, wrote a story about it, saying that you know, you know, that many believed it was a it was a white supremacy uh, signal. Um, you know, a few other outlets, and the, the Naval Academy said that they would do an investigation, mm-hmm. right? And that was a week ago. So now, today, and we're, we're recording on a Friday. It's Friday about you know, 7 p.m. here, mm-hmm. 7 something. Um, just a couple hours ago, the Navy came out and said that they finished their investigation, and they have found that it was not being used in mm-hmm. any racist manner, it was just being. It was just the circle game. These kids acting up. Mm. You know, they'll they'll discipline them for that, mm. for you know acting immature. But they, after their extensive investigation, which, which they supposedly used FBI and whatever, they found out they've they've concluded that it was not racist. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, you know, I hope that's true. Right. I hope. Right. But I'm not. For some reason, I'm not buying it. Mm. You know, I mean, even let's say even if it was. The circle game. These are not these are not ten, twelve right. year old kids. Right. These are twenty, you know, twenty plus year old guys who I'm sure have to know that it's also being used. If if it was if they weren't using it in that fashion, they they had to know that some people are. Right. Okay. Or they should know that right. that some people are. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not buying it. And also, you know, I flip it around. Let's say if it were a situation where a black where black kids were were using some kind of ge- gesture that was threatening to white society you cannot tell me that there would not be an overreaction and and there would be over enforcement of it right you know i mean we, we i mean we've seen it well remember remember paul pierce when he was playing remember he did like some a gang gesture right and the nba Right. Like find him and right. chastise him right. for like a gang right. sign, and of course the classic whether, whether he meant it or not as a gang, you know it doesn't matter right. when it, when it's when it's us if it, whatever the perception is right. that's that's it's, it's going down based right. on that right. Mm-hmm. right who won by the way who won what the um, army I don't know yeah <laughs> navy. navy navy was ranked navy, right navy killed him. navy was actually ranked and they won yeah yeah no. but I mean but I guess I guess. We deal with these news stories every day, and we're like stunned 
And why should we continue to be stunned by this stuff? I mean, I mean, we live constantly in the in the uh, in the ether or the whatever of racism. Also, allow me to apologize to other families formed through transracial adoption because I am deeply sorry that we suggested that interracial families are in any way funny or deserving of ridicule. The Korean War left more than one million Koreans dead and produced about a hundred thousand orphans. As a result, South Korea became the largest source of children for international adoptions, and the U.S. became their chief destination. Now, nearly seven decades later, some of those adoptees are tracing their roots in South Korea and building ties with family members they often didn't know they had. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports from Seoul on one such family. (laughs) A group of Korean orphans are celebrating Chuseok, Korea's mid-autumn festival when people give thanks for an abundant harvest. With them is Barbara Kim from Seattle. She was born in South Korea in 1955, the eldest of four children in a poor family. Kim's mother abandoned her in the hospital after giving birth. Kim's grandmother picked her up and raised her. Her parents shut her out of their room and later out of their house. I begged my father to let me in the house, and I just remember just crying and running after him and crying and and begging, and finally, he let me in the house. Confucian societies traditionally prefer boys to girls, and Kim had a birth defect, hip dysplasia. My mother made it very well known that I was not wanted. She told me that I had, I had brought nothing but shame to her. I remember her screaming, screaming, why don't you just go die, why don't you just go die? When she was about nine years old, Kim's father sent her to an orphanage run by Harry Holt, the founder of an international adoption agency. About a year later, she was adopted by a family of dairy farmers in Nebraska. The family fell on hard times, and they vented their anger on Kim by abusing her. And I remember one time thinking, dear God, wasn't it bad enough I had a first mother that was so horrible? Did you have to bring me to a second mother that... um, Uh, was like this. Kim went into the U.S. foster care system. Studying became her refuge. She got a bachelor's degree, then a master's degree, and after that worked for the very adoption agency that sent her to the U.S. In the late 1970s, Kim rediscovered her family in South Korea, but it was awkward. She hadn't grown up with her siblings, and neither side spoke the other's language. They only started to build their relationship in earnest over the past year. Eventually, I decided that I wanted to stay here to learn the language so I can get to know my family. And, and we are, for the first time, we're developing this relationship. Fourteen years after she left her, Barbara Kim found her youngest sister, who had also been placed in an orphanage. Nobody adopted her, so she went to work in a factory. Barbara reunited the siblings, and they went to visit her sister. Until Barbara appeared out of the blue, she had no idea that she had any siblings. They came to visit me, and they all cried to see me because maybe they thought I wasn't doing so well. But I just didn't feel anything, because I'd lived my whole life thinking I was alone. I didn't have anybody, so I just felt blank, empty. The sister asked that we not use her name due to the stigma of being an orphan in South Korea. Orphans' lives have also been shaped by a mix of geopolitics and domestic factors. America played a major role. 
Many of the early adoptees were the biracial children of USGIs fighting the Korean War. International adoption initially was thought of as like the quote-unquote solution to mixed-race children. Alina Kim, an anthropologist at University of California, Irvine, explains that putting biracial babies up for international adoption fit into South Korea's state narrative of a racially homogeneous nation. The idea being that children who were not fully Korean would never be accepted in South Korean society, and the South Korean government realized that there was an interest among Americans to adopt these children. South Korea's government says in its defense that it's reformed its adoption system and adequately protects children's welfare. But Alina Kim notes that South Korea spends less on social welfare than almost any other developed economy. This meant that many Korean adoptees were not orphans. Their parents just couldn't afford to raise them, and international adoptions allowed South Korea to shift some of its welfare burden overseas. One criticism of such a system, Kim says, is that it ignores the children's welfare. Why do people believe that it's um, better to remove a child from its country of origin rather than to provide money for the parents who can't afford to raise it? (laughs) At the Chuseok holiday party, Barbara Kim reflects on what life might have been like had she remained in South Korea, perhaps in an orphanage like her sister. She says she feels thankful that she was put up for adoption in the U.S. because it created opportunities for social and career advancement that she wouldn't have had in South Korea. And I look at these kids and these adults that have disabilities here in Korea, and, and the contrast between them is just so... It's like, I'm just thankful that I had that opportunity to go. Kim has been separated from her siblings for about 50 years. She says they have overcome their initial sense of awkwardness. They're proud to be part of the same family. And we have a lot in common. Even though we grew up so far apart, I feel like there's this sense of feeling like we belong. Kim looks at the orphans celebrating Chuseok around her and hopes that one day they too can find that sense of belonging to a family. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. The man not race, class, genre, and the dilemmas of black manhood. A mother's call, a viral video, calls out a Central Texas school and gets more than 13,000 views. In the video, she charges the school system, failed to protect her son from what she calls a sexual assault and other ongoing threats. That mother demands Colleen ISD take action to protect her son. The military wife says her son became the victim of what she calls sexual assault and other issues in the school system. She says the school system did nothing. The mom tells 25 News reporter Olivia Leveda exclusively about her concerns as Olivia gets response from the district. Shante Fletcher says it's been a difficult school year for her 10-year-old son who attends Meadows Elementary School on Fort Hood. And it's pretty much what it's sounding like from everyone involved is, well, we're sorry we've done all that we can do. It's, it's not our problem, so to speak. Fletcher says in September, a fellow student grabbed her son by the back of his neck and tried to violate him. They did an investigation. It came to be founded. I filed a police report. The military wife says the student received in-school suspension, but the bullying didn't stop there. Children in, um, in the recess area that he was playing Foursquare had called him the N-word and had threatened to bring a rope to school the next day. The mom is afraid that her son might be seriously injured if 
something isn't done. Well, one of the kids had asked the other child if he could bring a pocket knife to school because he wanted to kill my son, allegedly. We reached out to KISD to get answers. In a statement, school officials said, we are not able to discuss a situation regarding a particular student. However, the district takes all students and parent concerns seriously and investigates them to the fullest. Meanwhile, Fletcher says she's not only worried about her child's safety, but all students. Olivia Laveda, 25 News, Fort Hood. Ms. Fletcher says that since her son's school sits on Fort Hood, she reported what she calls the sexual assault and the death threats to military police. Why haven't you learned anything? Governor Roy Cooper has created a task force to address an ongoing concern in public schools across North Carolina, a lack of diversity among the state's teachers. Coldell Charco reports. Governor Cooper appeared at an event at NC State University earlier this month and outlined the problem and how he hopes to begin to address it. Afterward, he summarized his speech. I think some of the answers are going to be pretty simple, and it's going to be about implementation, but a lot of it is about recruiting. The crowd for the day-long summit was diverse. Former teacher and current State Board of Education member James Ford said he was impressed. So I don't think I've been a part of any convening in North Carolina but we've had this many educators of color in the same space. The evidence is pretty clear that having a same race teacher matters for students of color. That's Constance Lindsay, an assistant professor in the School of Education at UNC Chapel Hill. She researches teacher diversity and racial achievement gaps. A variety of studies show that having a same race teacher for black students in particular is related to a host of short and long run outcomes. Things like conduct violations all the way up to graduation rates. So the question is now what are we going to do about it and also what are sort of the best ways that we can intervene. The stakes are high. Tom Tomberlin is the director of educator recruitment and support at the Department of Public Instruction. He says the lack of diversity among educators is a real problem. Our state is now majority minority, and if if those students don't feel like education has a place for them or is welcoming to them, um, then our ability to educate them effectively is going to be hampered. Tomberlin spoke about the challenges of recruiting anyone into the profession, including teachers of color. Is it money? Is it prestige? Is it position in society? I don't know. All those things seem to factor into it. But if, um, if the profession is not attractive, then the recruitment efforts will be limited. The governor and others hope recruiting more people of color to teach will help them solve the educator shortage, too. Cold El Charco, North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. When are we as black people going to have the level of self-respect and courage to really come out of the slave role? Slave obey your master, turn the other cheek. May sir, you turn the other cheek and you'll get your reward in heaven. And that's a slave role. We haven't maybe thought about it in those terms. It's time now for StoryCorps, and as the new year approaches, we have a story about a new start. It begins in 2015. Asma Jama was eating at a restaurant in Coon Rapids, Mississippi, Minnesota. She was wearing a hijab and talking Swahili with her family. A customer in the next booth demanded that she speak English and then hit Asma in the face with a beer mug. Later, the attacker's sister, Dawn Sayre, reached out to Asma. They met for the first time at StoryCorps, and here's part of their conversation, which we first aired in 2017. Do you feel like you can't speak Swahili in public anymore? Yes, because 
I realize I don't belong. I have to prove myself every single day. And makes me feel like I had to give up a lot of who I was. I'm going to pray that you can eventually become that person you used to be. I will get there. It's going to take me a while. But for you to stand up for somebody you don't know and to say that what she did was unacceptable, that meant the world to me. I will support you in any possible way I can, you know, they say blood stickers in the water and you stand behind your family no matter what. Well, you got to draw a line somewhere. And you're my line. Thank you. Asma Jama and Don Sayre remained friends and they recently sat down for another StoryCorps interview. Do you feel like our conversation changed you in any way? Changed me in many, many ways. Asma, what I've learned from you from day one was you're strong. And I think that's what gave me the strength to do what I did. I believed in supporting you and everybody I loved and everybody around me wouldn't have anything to do with me. It took three years, but you know what? They came to me. I stood my ground and I gained a lot of respect yes. from my family. Yes. Eventually, I hope you and your sister, Jody can be in a better place. You never know. With time, she might realize she's on the wrong side of history. Can I ask you something? Yes. Me being in your life, does that keep bad memories for you no. from that? Sitting down with you actually was very, very good for me. It kind of gave me a positive light to a bad situation. When I talk about you, people always tell me, why are you smiling? I don't even know that I'm smiling. It's just because in the middle of the worst time of my life, you taught me that sometimes humanity is what we need. I don't see you just as a friend. I mean, yes. I see you as a sister. You are such a big part of my life. I really think I would lose a piece of who I am if I lost you as a friend. We're never going to lose each other. No. As long as we're alive. That was Dawn Sayre and Asma Jama in St. Paul, Minnesota. Attacking, trashy, terroristic. That is the interaction with black people and white people every day, wherever they happen to be going to be one of those categories, a combination of all three, before the day is over. But it, it doesn't get any better than tacky. I call it the three T's. <laughs> tacky, trashy, terroristic. That's it. Anywhere on the planet you are. It appears to be a case of mistaken identity, one that's terrified a family in Dexter. They say their home has been posted on a white supremacist chat room and that the intended target was someone else. 7 Action News reporter Jen Shans explains how this all began. It's the wrong address, the wrong home. Rich and Don Shea, who are worried for their safety, asked that we not show their faces. They moved to Dexter in August, eager to raise their kids in a safe, quiet neighborhood. Then some unexpected visitors showed up. So we uh, got a knock on the door, I think it was like September, from a sheriff and an FBI agent. And they talked to us about this particular address had just recently been put up on one of the white supremacist sites. They believe the intended target is the co-host of a podcast that works to debunk white supremacist theories. His name is Daniel Harper, which also happens to be the name of the person who used to live at the Shays Dexter home, a different Daniel Harper. Even if they don't do anything 
to me or to whoever is, that they're after. They're trying to say, we know where you live, so don't do things that make us unhappy. It's classic intimidation technique. Just a few weeks ago, the Shays were bringing home their new baby from the hospital when Rich spotted men dressed all in black. And he saw people photographing on the front porch. It was like, oh... Yeah, we know what this is. My immediate concern, obviously, was for the people living at that address. Fearing for the safety of their entire neighborhood, the Shays posted to social media about this. They say the community has been nothing but supportive. Meanwhile, the Washtenaw County Sheriff's Office continues to investigate. It definitely took away that sense of peace that you'd hope when you come home with a new kid. Despite no direct threats being posted, Dawn Shay says it's affected her feeling of security in her new neighborhood. Seeing it and... The skulls and the threatening nature and seeing their website um, with neo-Nazi flags, um, to be honest, put me at disease. In Dexter, Jen Shantz, 7 Action News. Damn, the bastards must be running out of niggas to arrest. One year ago, President Trump passed a law that promised criminal justice reform across the country. We call it the First Step Act. I sort of like the idea of just calling it criminal justice reform. The bipartisan First Step Act authorized the early release of federal prisoners who were convicted of low-level drug offenses and have worked through rehabilitation programs. And one year later, more than 3,000 inmates have been released. One of them is Nora Yaya. I did 10 years in Danbury FCI and then lowered my security level to the camp. And from there, I was released upon the FSA, which put me out uh, March 11, 2019, which took off approximately three years of my sentence. Nora was in for possession and intent to distribute cocaine. I think one of the excitements of the First Step Act is that people could get closer to their families and continue that bond. For Nora, besides being away from her children, incarceration meant enduring painful health issues with no relief. While I was incarcerated, my legs started hurting me and I also had lymphoma, like two lumps in my legs. So one night, I actually couldn't even get up. They actually had to call the ambulance. But it was only after her release this year that she was finally able to undergo back surgery. It completely changed all the pain in my legs. I feel like 100% like the person I was prior to all that happening. Even after the long overdue medical treatment, for Nora, re-entry was challenging. It was very hard. Not just technology-wise, that's that's something in its own self that was hard and very challenging. Um, I also started out in a new state, which is New York, but I had to start over with my children who were who aren't children who are adults now but the first step act led her to criminal justice reform organizations that helped guide her post-incarceration life they introduced me to a computer program there which is just the basics of surfing the internet things that are just totally foreign to me they also helped me with my medical assistance because I hadn't had the proper medical treatment. And I also took a program to become licensed for a food handler. Now, Nora works as an advocate for people who are incarcerated. And I think the First Step app actually opened a door in the eyes of many people for those who are incarcerated and formerly incarcerated. For more on the First Step Act and where it is one year in, I'm joined by Jonathan Terry, policy advisor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice 
and Louis L. Reed, national organizer for Cut 50, a bipartisan initiative to cut crime and incarceration in half across the country. Thanks to both of you for being here on the show. Thanks for having having me on. Jonathan, first, tell us how the First Step Act is intended to work when it comes to early release. So the First Step Act includes several provisions for federal prison reform. It eliminates the three-strike rule, which is a law that was originally meant to provide harsher punishments for those who have several federal convictions. So previously, you could get a life sentence for having three convictions, federal convictions. Mm -hmm. That's been reduced to a 25-year sentence. It also extends the 2010 Fair Sentencing Act, which reduced the disparity that could be given in a sentence for selling crack cocaine versus powder cocaine. It also brings people closer to home, ideally. 500 miles is now the limit that people are supposed to be allowed to be away from home when in a federal prison. It includes a lot of other quality of life, you might say, provisions for federal prisons as well. So women who are pregnant are no longer able to be shackled. Juveniles are no longer able to be put in solitary confinement. It also expanded reentry programs, which was mentioned a little bit before. So the process of going back into society after prison is a an arduous one. And so the First Step Act uh, apportioned millions of dollars for a lot of those uh, programs to help mm-hmm. people as they reenter. It was also meant to create risk assessment tools, which look at someone's record and various other factors to decide whether or not they are a risk to society. And that way, uh, ideally, we are able to look at people, allow them to exit from prison and know because this person isn't going to be a risk to anyone, we feel okay letting them out even potentially earlier. Let me ask you about sentence reduction, because as I Mm. mentioned just a minute ago, more than 3,000 people have been released now under this act. Can you explain what the process looks like for them to have gotten their sentences reduced? Right. So a lot of the people who are having their sentences reduced were originally sentenced in the 70s and 80s as a part of the war War on on drugs. drugs. Mm -hmm. And so the First Step Act says that since we sentence people differently now, um, we are going to look at those sentences that were given before. And if they are no longer in line with what we would sentence you currently, we are going to reduce those sentences. Uh, Many of them, those sentences are reduced through petition. Some are reduced automatically. Um, There is also an expansion of good time, which says that if you are incarcerated, but you are taking part in programs that are meant to rehabilitate you, whether that's job training or drug treatment or something of that sort, you can have time taken off of your sentence. And so there are different provisions to allow people to reduce their sentences. And about 1,700 people have gotten reductions in their sentence Uh, since the First Step Act went into law. And there's a reduction of about six years on average for people who have that reduction. Lewis, let me bring you into the conversation. Jonathan just mentioned the war on drugs in the 70s and 80s. This act is mainly aimed at people who were arrested during that time period. Many of them were black men. What do we know about the demographics of the people who've been released under the act so far? You know, for decades, the criminal justice uh, conversation among our political leaders, especially both 
on the state and national level could be characterized as a race to the bottom. It was a competition for who could be the toughest on crime, who could lock up the most people and throw away the key. Uh, it was also a conversation that was defined by dangerous rhetoric with no regard for empathy or second chances. And you know, essentially it dehumanized people. I was one of those individuals that was in that conversation. In 2000, I was sentenced to a term of imprisonment of 188 months. And for our listening audience, uh, I don't want to, you know, belabor the point in terms of you using your fingers and toes trying to figure that out. That's approximate. That's approximately 16 years. I served almost 14 years off that 16-year federal uh, prison sentence for um, uh, white-collar-related uh, offenses. Most of the individuals by whom I was incarcerated with were not individuals that had got caught up in the war on drugs in the 70s and 80s. In fact, these individuals uh, were caught up in the mid-90s to the early 2000s, uh, especially after the 1994 Clinton crime bill. Mm. 91% of the individuals that were released under that particular provision that Jonathan talked about uh, as it relates to the crack cocaine provision. 91% of those individuals were African-Americans. So let me just quantify these numbers uh, for you for a second. To date, 7,000 people total have been released under the First Step Act. Uh, I should say 7,000 people total have have received significant reductions uh, and they have been released under the First Step Act. 91% 91% of those individuals happen to be African American who African Americans who were sentenced under those draconian uh, you know crack cocaine laws, uh, particularly pointing back to 1987, moving up to 1994, and uh, up to date until about approximately 2010. That has totaled that 7,000 number that has totaled approximately 17,000 years of human freedom that have been restored back to our community. Now think about this. In the Christmas season, uh, Jesus was crucified approximately 2,000 years ago. And if we look at the numbers, that actually places us back into BC. So I think that this is something that is significant. I am literally uh, pulled over on the side of the road, uh, 20 minutes away from MDC, Brooklyn, where I am going to to be with a family who is going to have their loved one um, uh, return back to them uh, in this Christmas season after having served 20 years on a life sentence and that individual is going to be released as a result, uh, as a result of the First Step Act. And that's as a result of the advocacy uh, with people such as myself, Topeka K. Sam, David Savavian, uh, you know, Cut 50's co-founder Van Jones and Jessica Jackson, and the many other advocates and organizations that was in this uh, bipartisan coalition to make sure that we got this bill across the finish line. Lewis, let me ask you something, because one of the act's major provisions, as Jonathan mentioned earlier, was to place incarcerated individuals within a 500-mile radius of their families so they would be closer to them. Why was that such an important part of this legislation? Yeah, so the reason why the 500-mile provision is significantly important within the First Step Act is because it was it does one of several things. Number one, it makes sure that individuals are connected with their families and that those relationships are cultivated between parents and their children. Number two, it brings about a level of proximity 
to the individual who was incarcerated and also to their community. And number three, it actually reduces the probability of individuals who are incarcerated from participating in issues that very well could bring about institutional infractions. So for instance, if an individual is in proximity to uh, their last known address and they know that they are potentially going to see their mother, their father, their family members, uh, significant others, et cetera, they are going to be less likely to be engaged in fights, assaults, you know, and the likes thereof. Jonathan, the act, when it was passed last year, it was hailed by President Trump as a huge achievement in being able to bring the two parties together. As Mm -hmm. Lewis mentioned, it was largely a bipartisan effort. Why did this act appeal to politicians on both sides of the aisle? So criminal justice reform uh, brings people together in part because there's a strong moral uh, push for it. It's hard to argue in a lot of cases that someone who may have made a mistake should be put away for such a long time. Um, It's also incredibly expensive. We spend billions of dollars incarcerating people. Um, Especially here in the United States, we have the world's largest prison population. We do. We have over 2.1 million people in prison in the United States. Um, And I think that regardless of where you fall politically, you can see that we are wasting a lot of money on putting people in cages when those people could be contributing to the economy, those people could um, be with their families. And so it really brings people together on either side. And of course, um, Jared Kushner had a father who was incarcerated. And so he understands some of the issues that are being uh, that are at play here. And he was able to help usher along the political coalition uh, that pushed through the First Step Act. And I think that we are also thinking a lot about mass incarceration. Um, the fact that we do have so many people put away, um, the draconian laws that were just mentioned have really torn apart communities. And we're able to now fight that together. And I think everyone can see the value in that. Lewis, I know that you're very involved in communities where people are returning home from prison. Can you talk about some of the biggest hurdles for them once they're out? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that there are things that, you know, are obvious and show up in the stat sheets. You know, these are the things in terms of employment, housing insecurities, uh, et cetera, and the likes thereof. I think that one of the th- the, the major uh, issues that um, this First Step Act seeks to remedy is the simplicities of things such as not having an identification card. Uh, one of the provisions within the bill actually requires all federal people who are being released to make sure that they have access to uh, appropriate identification. When you think about that, that may not necessarily seem like much, quote unquote much, but when you think about how an individual could potentially uh, have incidental contact with police, uh, with with, with uh, law enforcement, and that individual could potentially have their term of supervision uh, violated because of incidental contact, because he or she may not may be in a place where they may be accosted by the police. They could be uh, riding in, as a passenger in a vehicle. Uh, an officer asks for that individual's identification. That individual can't produce it because he or she has not necessarily uh, secured it because you need an ID just to get an ID. And the, all the, the bureaucracy uh, involved with that, that individual could actually be uh, you know, uh, hauled into their local police department 
department uh, just to, you know, check out who they who they are. And when they are there, that could potentially trigger a violation for police contact. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are things in terms of like employment. Yes, people need to be back uh, and or uh, not even back because most of the individuals who are actually incarcerated, they may not necessarily have had employment in the first place. So they, they need to enter into our workforce. They need to make sure that they have adequate housing. They need to make sure that they have access to appropriate health care. Uh, treatment, et cetera. And so one of the things that we're doing at Cut50 is one of the several uh, following. We have partnered with Lyft through our relationship with Kim Kardashian. They have given us 10,000 uh, free Lyft rideshare credits that we are distributing to individuals who are being released under the First Step Act so that they can have access to, um, you know, just, you know, employment opportunities, uh, health care opportunities, et cetera. Uh, healthcare appointments, uh, et cetera, I should say. In addition, we have also partnered with Talkspace. Talkspace is the online therapeutic uh, platform so that individuals can decompress from what I call uh, the new PTSD, and that's prison traumatic stress disorder, mm. uh, so that they can have an, you know, a, a safe place just to you know, uh, talk about the, the traumas or, and or the vicarious trauma that they have actually observed as a result of being incarcerated. Let me bring Jonathan back in here for just a moment because this law, I should mention, affects people incarcerated at the federal level. It doesn't even touch the roughly 1.3 million people in state prisons. Are we seeing similar reform movements at the state level, Jonathan? The federal system incarcerates more than any individual state system, but the state systems account for the vast majority of people in prison. So the federal system is about 10% of the total U.S. Uh, prison population. And so we are seeing some of these reforms being put in place. Um, not all of them are prison reforms. Some of them are broader criminal justice reforms. But uh, where they are being put in place uh, really depends on the state. New York has just passed new bail laws, which are going to affect uh, shortly mm -hmm. uh, in 2020. In the new year. In the new year. And uh, other places are thinking about you know, legalizing marijuana or thinking about how do we safely uh, erase past convictions. And some of that is happening through advocates. Some of it is happening through progressive district attorneys. Um, and so at the state level, not only do you have more people incarcerated, but you have in some ways a more complicated system just because so many different actors uh, are involved in making particular decisions. Um, and so we do see these reforms, but it'll be harder to push through in a lot of ways on the state level um, just to get everyone on board. Mm, and let's talk about politics now on the federal level, because many advocates have acknowledged that the First Step Act is a major victory. Mm. But they've also mentioned that the next step is focusing on those who've been found guilty of violent offenses and perhaps even rethinking policing on a grander scale. Would either of those approaches be able to gain bipartisan support, in your opinion, Jonathan? That's really hard to say. A lot of previous bills that were not able to be passed um, lost a lot of support because they were they pushed too far. Um, a lot of uh, advocates say that the First Step Act didn't go far enough um, because it doesn't eliminate mandatory minimums, um, because it doesn't push far enough on good time credits. Um, we are wondering about what does electronic monitoring do? There is a new 
um, thought within criminal justice reform circles that we are moving towards e-carceration where people's information will be collected um, and where we'll know where someone is at all times. We'll have a certain amount of information built up, which is a different kind of uh, captivity in a way. And so there are a lot of sort of fights that are yet to be had, but violent crime in particular is a really difficult one, I think, even uh, for people on the left who have been pushing for various kinds of criminal justice reform for years. Um, Thinking about releasing someone who, you know, may have sold drugs at some point is very different from thinking about what do we do with someone who may have hurt someone on the street, um, may have even killed someone. Um, And so those will be much harder battles, and I, at this point, can't quite see it receiving bipartisan support. But I think that the First Step Act was fantastic because it showed that there is some possibility. I was once told doing this work that if you don't believe that you can make a difference and push forward, then why are you doing the work at all? So I'll stay optimistic. Jonathan Terry is a policy advisor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, and Louis L. Reed is a national organizer for Cut 50. Thanks to both of you for joining us. Thanks for, Thanks for having me on. When we think about capital punishment, it's often through the lens of the people who are killed by the state, not the ones who carry out the killings. But a new death row drama called Clemency provides an unusual perspective into state-sanctioned executions. How do you keep doing it? I do my job. You want to believe there's good guys and bad guys. And I'm one of the bad guys. But I give these men respect, Marty. All the way through. What you heard there was a clip from the film where prison warden Bernadine Williams is talking to the lawyer of an inmate on death row. You can't save the world. Yeah. That's a problem. Clemency takes a deep dive into a prison warden's life. It examines what it's like to be a black woman in charge of sending men to their death and how those carrying out state-sanctioned killings are often left traumatized and isolated. Tanzina Vega recently spoke with the film's writer and director, Chinoya Chuku, who became the first black woman to win the U.S. Dramatic Grand Jury Prize at Sundance Film Festival, where Clemency premiered this year. They were joined by Oscar nominee Alfre Woodard, who co-produced the film and stars as the warden. Chinoya started by telling Tanzina why she chose to present the world of capital punishment From a warden's perspective. Well, I was inspired to tell this story the morning after Troy Davis was executed. Hundreds of thousands of people around the world protested against his execution, including a handful of retired wardens who collectively had overseen hundreds of executions in their careers. And they urged the governor of Georgia to grant Troy clemency, not just on the grounds of his potential innocence, but they spoke to the emotional and psychological toll killing him would have on the prison staff sanctioned to do so. And so the morning after he was executed, I, like many other people, were kind of navigating a complexity of emotions, anger, fear, or frustration and sadness. And I just thought if we're kind of all feeling this way, what must it be like for the people 
who had to take his life. You know, what is it like for your livelihood to be tied to the taking of human life? And I was just obsessed with that question and thought that it would be a really fascinating, complex exploration of the humanities at stake when it comes to mass incarceration and capital punishment if I tell the story through the perspective of the perpetrator of the system. We also know that black and brown Americans are disproportionately incarcerated in this country more than white Americans are. Why did you decide in casting Alfre to have a black woman play the role of the warden, Bernadine Williams? I mean, really, why not? I didn't think beyond that. It just made all the sense in the world to be most of the wardens who I spoke with or interviewed over my years of research were black women. And so what we see representationally in media is something from what my observations was quite different. And and so I just thought that that would further add to the complexity of the narrative and actually would be quite authentic. Alfre, you are and starring in the film as the warden Bernadine Williams. You're caught between having a lot of power and yet at the same time feeling almost helpless in the role. How do you think Bernadine's character helps viewers understand the role of wardens in the prison system? I think, first of all, we see her as a human being because most of us never have the opportunity to go into a prison uh, and especially to see the warden. So we we have no idea who those people are. I was surprised that any woman, not just a black woman, would be a a warden because I had that sort of dramatic, romanticized ogre image of a prison warden. And so to be taken, Chinoya took me on a prison tour in Ohio, but to to meet the women that I met and to be a little bit just surprised and having to keep that surprise out of my eyes because they were women that, you know, would be in my book club or at a, at a church or a synagogue. And they were very calm. And there was all this revelation happening. I was thinking, if I am a person that has been around in the world, all levels of circumstance of people in the world and educated, and I didn't know that I would assume that the vast majority of Americans didn't know that. So that made me really want to get her story out, but to get it out through her eyes, her point of view. And that's where her humanity would show and people would see, oh, that might be my cousin. That might be my friend I went to college with. That might be a neighbor. And then to understand the weight of the responsibility of of ritualistically taking the life of someone that basically is your coworker after years of trying to exhaust their appeals because that's the person you deal with every day. That's an intimate relationship. So it is so damaging for the people that work on death row. And to that point, there's this tension between the sort of rote duties of the warden, which are you know, talking about what your last meal is going to be, uh, talking about sort of reading out rote descriptions of what inmates should expect in the lead up to their death, uh, things that have to happen that have to get checked off. And yet there's this almost PTSD that the character develops in dealing with this. How did you prepare for the emotional burden that this film represents? When we took that trip and people allowed us into their lives. We met with, I think, three wardens and a deputy warden, the women. We had meals with them. We met with the director of corrections, and we met with a man who has probably taken more people through the process 
than anyone in the world, who later became a staunch uh, anti-death penalty campaigner. He actually choreographed our two execution scenes for the film and having a meal with him. What you're doing is witnessing as a as an artist, you especially as an actor, you're present. You're not just hearing, saying, oh, how do you do this? You don't ask all of that. You get with the person, you walk with them, you listen to them, talk to other people, you feel them. You We're inhaling so many aspects of what we would use to play that musical score, to hit that note that your filmmaker wants with a clear tone. So once you get back, and let me add, having the privilege of having a conversation with two condemned men, and I say privilege because if your time is limited, to agree to talk to two women from alleged Hollywood, all of that is witnessing, gathering so when I show up, all I had to do was stay focused. The plot is there, but I brought all of them with me. You know, I, uh, Troy Davis uh, was executed by the state of Georgia in 2011. Over the past eight years, how has your research and work in this field of clemency evolved? What have you learned about clemency in particular when it comes to uh, not just inmates, but inmates of color in particular in the United States. And how had that changed your approach to writing this script? When I decided that I wanted to tell this story, I knew absolutely nothing about prisons or capital punishment or really what clemency meant and that it means so much more than a stay of execution. There are different kind of tiers to it. And so I learned so much, not just about clemency, but about the prison system and the prison industrial complex and how incredibly difficult it is to get someone out of corrective control once they're in it, regardless of innocence or guilt, Um, how self-perpetuating the system is and how that there are so many systemic ills that could be dismantled or prevented so the prison population can be significantly reduced. And so I learned a lot about how rare clemency is, how hard it is to fight for it. And I also, in some strange way, got a renewed appreciation for life. Like I remember reading Troy Davis's, it started out as an autobiography. And then when he was executed, his legal team and his family took over the writing of the book. I remember reading a passage where he was talking about how no matter who executes him, nobody could really take the light away from him. And I've talked to quite a few people who are incarcerated who have been forced to learn how to embody a level of light inside of them and freedom inside of them that a lot of people I know who've never been behind prison walls don't even embody. And so that's definitely expanded me and my capacity for empathy and compassion has exponentially expanded. There's a lot of activism more recently around controversial death sentences in general. We here on The Takeaway, we recently talked about the case of Rodney Reed, the arguments that were made in support of his innocence shortly before he was set to be executed by the state of Texas. Um, There are protesters in the film that are fighting for Woods. How do you see their role and your role in the film sort of playing out? When the victim's family comes to appeal to the warden, to Bernadine, they want to, they want to bring the victim's son to the um, execution. 
but they can only have so many people to come. Bernadine, what she does is she sticks to protocol. She doesn't make allowances. There's, you'll see different points in the film. She says, I'm sorry, I can't do that. That's against the protocol. And you think, that is heartless. How can you do that? What's it going to hurt? But she also says, I've got a thousand people in here that, I, that I'm responsible for their lives to keep them safe. And the truth is, if you don't have protocol, one drop stitch, that whole thing can come unravel. So I learned about women and men who are able to do that and hold the line. And in a sense, that is compassion as well. And most of the women we met came from mental health or social work. So they know how to do that. They know how to not get emotional because they've seen so much more than we'll ever see. When she says to them, when the victim's mother says, those people are out there yelling, why don't you, you know, this is awful. And she says, you know, that's state property. I can't, I, I can't do anything about that, which is true. But also, I think it helps her, Bernadine, to know that there are people out there raising the ruckus, bringing attention, because she's waiting for that phone call as much as anybody else, because it's another stain on her soul if if they have to go through with it, her and the entire prison staff, the death row staff. So I think I would like to think she's hoping the way that I would hope that the activists in all realms keep up their agitation and their so that the public can keep it in their minds and talk about it because something might trigger what they're doing could trigger that governor to make that call and say, let's let's stop it and let's review this. And as much as she has to hold the line, Bernadine is not just a warden. She also has a personal life. She's a wife. And it, there's almost this tension where she's keeping a lot of this stress tucked under the surface, right? How does that translate into her home life? Just like a lot of professions that... Only a certain type of personality can can hold down that spot. They have trouble when they come home. You can love a person. You have to compartmentalize almost. You can love a person. You can be gregarious. You have fun and all that. But you can't talk to the person that you feel the closest to on earth. You can't talk about what has happened in the day necessarily. Do you know what happened on the set in the office at the school today? They don't have that because they haven't even consciously processed what it means to take the life of a person that you have known and have said to them, I will take you all the way through this with dignity. That's my contract to you. And so you do keep things inside. That's why a lot of people in professions, in uh, duties, one of the things that I was attracted to in Chinoya's film is that it's pivotal that she shows Bernadine and Wendell Pierce plays Jonathan, the husband. And it's not just, oh, we're having a fight the way cut to the chase. It is a real sort of look at grownups who have a marriage and, and how you work it out, the commitment. It's not like you just turn and run and there's no bad guys there. But it's an example of whatever career or profession you're in, it's what makes marriages work and letting people know that it is work. Janoya, to round this out, a lot of that work, a lot of what we see in the film is often muted. There's a use of space and sound. Um, 
or lack thereof that's guiding viewers through the intensity of the story. What was your thought process there? Was it to sort of let things, let the the audience interpret the feelings and what was happening? Yeah, my intention was never to let, not never to tell audiences how to feel. I wanted to make an unsentimental film that is so firmly rooted in humanity. And I wanted the humanities of each character to evolve and unfold in real time in some moments as organically as possible and really give space to each character, each person in the film, space to just live and breathe on screen and let the audience feel that. I also was intentional about playing with time because the idea of time in a prison space means something very different when you are serving a life sentence, when you have been just given a death warrant and you know you have up to 30 days, when you are seconds away from being executed. And so I really wanted to play with and manipulate the idea of time. Junoya Chuku is the writer and director of Clemency and Oscar nominee Alfre Woodard stars as the warden Bernadine Williams. Thanks to you both. Thank you so much. Thank you. Awesome rough girls from Rutgers, man. They got tattoos and some hardcore hoes. That's, that's a nappy-headed hose there. I'm going to tell you that now. <laughs> oh, man. man, that's some... Ooh. Earlier in the show, we reported radio personality Don Imus passed away at the age of 79 this morning in Texas after being hospitalized on Christmas Eve. Let's take a look back at his life. Ladies and gentlemen, Imus in the morning. You know, usually uh, when I leave a job, I'm escorted out of the building by security. Born on July 23rd, 1940 in Riverside, California, John Donald Imus was a broadcast host known for his controversial humor. He was raised on a cattle ranch, but made his way into a career in radio that started in the late 60s. His talk show, Imus in the Morning, on WNBC quickly became a phenomenon. When you say stuff about people and then run into them, how does that go? I never run into them. Oh, you don't? I'm never invited to anything. <laughs> <laughs> you're the governor of New Jersey. If you're not pulling down a lot of money, then you're not, not, well, in, that's the problem. not in the great tradition. Breaking, of the breaking tradition, Don. Breaking tradition and not taking those envelopes of cash. I don't go around and tell, pretend to people that we know you really well or that we hang out with you, that kind of thing. You know me pretty well, Don. This Affordable Care Act is going to be... I think it may collapse. What are you doing? Are you drinking something? Does somebody say to you, you know, don't wear a coat and tie when you go on this show? When you're not running for anything and you're going to be on a radio show with a cowboy, I didn't expect <laughs> you to have a velvet jacket and a black tie on. I mean, I, I, <laughs> no, I thought you were one of the most popular talk shows in American history. It lasted 36 years on radio and 11 years on MSNBC until it got canceled in 2007. The I-Man's career was put on a brief hold after offending Rutgers University's women's basketball team members. These comments, as deplorable as they were, I need to stand in front of them and say I'm sorry. 
In fact, this was neither the first or last time Imus's refusal to hold back his opinions would almost cost him his career. Back in 1996, his speech at the radio television correspondence dinner was viewed as insulting, namely toward President Bill Clinton and First Lady Hillary Clinton. Fans say they loved him because he refused to be a hypocrite. We all heard the president in his obvious excitement holler, Go, baby! I remember commenting at the time, I bet that's not the first time he said that. Rolex track up. In 2009, Don Imus made his way back to TV, debuting on Fox Business Network. Imus in the morning would go on until 2015. I talk and they listen. Please don't contact me. Then he went back to radio. The host was inducted into both the National Association of Broadcasters and Radio Halls of Fame. The I-Man won four Marconi Awards, also known as the Oscars of Broadcast. He would make appearances on David Letterman and was also featured in shows such as 60 Minutes. Each weekday morning on his nationally syndicated radio show, Don Imus broadcasts a raucous repertoire of sophomoric smut, occasional bigotry, and frequently inspired political satire. The radio star was also noted as a philanthropist, alongside his wife, Deidre. He ran the Imus Ranch for children with cancer and blood disorders. He was diagnosed with cancer himself and also battled with respiratory problems. Don Imus's longtime career and unique personality are now remembered by his family and tens of millions of fans coast to coast. The legendary and controversial Don Imus was 79 years old context of white supremacy may 21st through may 24th toronto cows 2020 counter racist yoga retreat very serious about doing it up in toronto that's what i have to say after our first day of the yoga retreat here in florida May 21 through May 24, very serious about Toronto. Price would be 660. Heard from enough mothers, parents, period. Single moms, moms, period, parents, period. I said, man, Gus, we want to come and have vegan food. We want vegan sweet potato pie. But if you are a parent, especially if you're a single parent, the price for the retreat is too expensive can you help out for people who have children which is legitimate and it was quite a few parents who were like man you have priced out parents I said this is what we can do planning for the future May 21 through May 24 Toronto 2020 counter racist yoga retreat total price 660 US as long as we have eight paying adults any children age 14 and under half price that would be 330 that the child would have to share a bed with the parent hopefully one of these days we'll be closer to replacing white supremacy with justice and we'll have even more space but until then child would have to share a bed with the parent age 14 and under but price for adults 660 US 660 dollars US children 14 and under, long as we have eight paying adults. 14 and under, half price, 330. 
deadline for the deposit would be February 29th. This is leap year, so-called. Uh, so pick a rare day, February 29th for the deposit. We could either do the entirety 660 since we have people who are solid for every workplace racism. I assume that you get all your raises and bonuses. I mean, hey, maybe that's, you know, a, a little no count bonus uh, for you. Maybe that's nothing. So if we have people you want to pay the full 660 one or before February 29, great. Uh, we could do a deposit of 400 and then you can pay the final 260 May 1 but Toronto May 21st through May 24th 2020 making sure that I get the date out I'm going to say it at the beginning of the program so no one is saying wait a minute I missed the date or I didn't get the information deadline make sure we're up front I'm also doing this out front because get your passport I have been uh, hashtagging that for a few days since we got here uh, I will be hashtagging that regularly and I think that's an important component of counter-racism because we talk about wanting to things might uh, get worse for black people in this part of the world so you want to have the ability to relocate, change venue uh, to help in the strategy of replacing white supremacy with justice. I think traveling is super important. Racists do a lot to keep us niggerized so that we are not thinking I'm a universal man. I'm a universal woman or at least I should be striving to be a universal woman, universal man. Oh no, I'm just going to be king of third, third street. I'm going to be king of fifth street. Anybody who come, I mean, or king of whatever the town is. Universal man, universal woman, get your passport. And I'm uh, talking to myself because I don't have my passport either. <clears throat> so I need to get mine. I already was looking at the forms, fill it out. I think it costs, get the book get the book don't get the card because the book lasts for 10 years better investment I think it costs like $140 it's not cheap $150 but again we have people who are quiet for every workplace racism so that should be no problem either but get your passport it does take uh, like 6 weeks 8 weeks to process that's we have way way time before May so do that now May 21 to May 24 I am so enthusiastic about that one because Toronto is lovely in the summertime even though we're a little bit before summer but Toronto is lovely once the weather gets warm and two because we are here at the Cows 2019 counter racist retreat in Florida wow I did not think we were going to be here I didn't think we were going to be in Virginia either and it has been a surprise but we are here day one and it has been pretty nice thus far at least in my view you'll be able to hear from the folks uh, who are here shortly the number 605-313-5164 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate number again 605-313-5164 the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate. We'll get to the folks who joined us in Florida. I'm always very humbled, uh, humbled and and almost a bit surprised. Uh, people willing to trek 
travel some miles to come hang out and do some yoga and have vegan food. I think last time when we did the retreat in Virginia, the compensatory program happened on day three of the retreat. So we had already been around each other for a period of time and been eating and doing a lot of yoga and everything. So people had a rich experience to report on this time around compensatory calling is on day one. So we have only been around each other for a few hours, but in that short time we have eaten and we have done yoga. So the folks that are here will at least be able to speak to that. And then they'll have more to say, presumably once we get to the end, which is on Wednesday, January one. But thankfully I think we all got here safely without too much difficulty. Uh, yeah, or at least, yeah, at least from, I have not heard of any, I myself got here safely without too much difficulty. They did confiscate my coconut milk. That was the worst of it. Uh, and I think the rest of the folks got here without uh, difficulty as well. Hopefully everybody will have a safe travel back to their respective locations as well. Uh, I do have one other tidbit to share, but I'll get to that later. Uh, let's see. I'll go ahead and get to the folks who are here. Uh, you all can feel free to, I guess, take turns. You can have a handle unless you are already known <laughs> under a handle, but uh, think of a handle, how you would like to be addressed. Uh, just tell folks uh, what, why you came and what your thoughts are on what we have done thus far. You have already had a little bit of yoga time. You've already had a little bit of food time. So you can comment on that or any other aspect of uh, what you have experienced on day one and uh, what brought you here to begin with. Uh, we can just take turns, make sure everybody covers that and uh, shouldn't take too long. We have a nice little intimate group down here in Florida. I'll get the figure out which line folks are on. Boop. Alrighty. Uh, you all can take time and go when you're ready. Greetings. Can I be heard? Absolutely. This is Young Academic from Connecticut. I came down to be around like-minded uh, individuals, and so far, I'm very happy of that uh, decision I made. We, I've had a constructive conversation that has caused me to uh, think critically, and I think it was well worth the trip. Food is awesome, like it was last time. No complaints. Hello, man. Have you heard? Yes, sir. My name is Mr. Blue. I'm from the Bronx. I came to have a replenished and rejuvenating new year and into the new year doing something that haven't, I haven't done, which is not have any drinks, not go to any clubs, but actually eat healthy, good food, and do yoga. And the first day has been absolutely great. Made it to Florida safely after a 16-hour drive from New York City and did some wonderful yoga, which helped my body be better and ate some really, really nutritious and absolutely amazing, amazing food and dessert, and it's been absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Hello, may I be heard? Yeah. 
Hi, my name is Kaya Rogue, and um, I came out to Florida to join this group. I was hoping, I am hoping, to reboot my body and get back into eating vegan food and uh, doing yoga daily. And so far, I am having a wonderful time. The first yoga session has me very calm. The food is absolutely amazing. And I must let you all know, Gus T. Renegade makes a mean, delicious sweet potato pie. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> Greetings to all of you. Bless. Um, hello, may I be heard? Hey, um, my name is Nadira, and I'm here at the retreat. I'm coming down from Virginia. I had a really safe travel down here, and... We're having a wonderful day. I'm having a great time um, in Florida. I've met so many nice people. Everybody's so kind and amazing. It's a great group. Um, the yoga session we had was amazing. I really needed it. I feel like everybody really needed it, but it was just, like, so good. And the food was good, and the sweet potato pies were, like, perfect. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Greetings, everyone. Uh, I am am known as the retired firefighter. And uh, I am grateful to be able to uh, come to this occasion. Uh, I had the purpose in mind of uh, working on transforming my uh, eating habits. And uh, also, there are out of the four things that Mr. Fuller suggested that non-white black people should do, uh, we have been performing at least two of them uh, in a constructive manner, exchanging and sharing views and uh, attempting to eat properly. Uh, The the other aspect of that is sleeping properly, and I'm pretty sure that uh, I'm going to get a good night's sleep also. So uh, I'm enjoying myself, and uh, I expect uh, things to stay at the high level that they are. Thank you. Before we let retired firefighter go, I just want to make sure we get this in because it's all plant-based meal. And uh, retired firefighter, he volunteered when he got here. He said, I did not stop at McDonald's. I trusted that you all would have some tasty vittles here. And he ate. We had our our meal, dessert, and everything. We finished. Uh, were you still hungry? Were you man? You all got all this rabbit food and nonsense. Were you were you hungry when we finished our meal this evening? I am still full, <laughs> <laughs> and that's been about what an hour and a half ago. <laughs> Much yes, obliged. Uh, very good. Very good meal. Still full. That's us. I am not interested in eating food that doesn't taste good, and I'm not interested in eating, you know, a few scraps of lettuce or any other veggies. Uh, and you know, that's supposed to be my meal, and then I can brag that I am a vegan or vegetarian or whatever it is. Like you're supposed to eat, feel good, supposed to taste good, and you're supposed to feel like, oh yeah, I'm, I ate, I'm good. I don't need to eat anything else. I'm good. I can go do whatever else. Uh, let's see. I wish for our listeners, there were folks, man, oh man, 
race soldiers, white people, spectacular job. We easily could have, should have had a larger group, although not too large because it is a yoga treat. So it's supposed to be kind of a intimate thing, but easily larger. We had folks who were with us in Virginia, wanted to return racism, white supremacy, of course, can make things difficult uh, in about seconds. Uh, And then other people who had other emergencies and things of that nature system of white supremacy. That is uh, the nature of things. Uh, And some people, uh, they just didn't either get information or it took them some time to kind of make decisions. So hopefully next time around, we'll make sure everybody has all of the information early, accurate. Any questions we can get to you immediately if you have any questions or concerns uh, about Toronto, May 21 through May 24th, 2020. Four days, three nights, doing yoga, plant-based meals. As long as we have eight paying adults, children half price, total price 660. We should do it. I'm excited about going back to uh, Toronto. Man, oh man. Uh, I did make vegan sweet potato pie. I was very pleased with the turnout. In fact, I said that that might become a a cow's yoga retreat staple uh, to do sweet potato pie for all of the retreats. We'll have to see. There's certainly other baked items. Peach cobbler. I was talking about that before. Peach cobbler. There's certainly many other things that uh, can be made that I enjoy making. But man, it's always nice to have sweet potato pie. And if you can make really good vegan sweet potato pie, man. Anyway, uh, still compensatory call-in. Many things did happen. We did have uh, the news segments. I cannot believe Don Imus's death. That'll be part of the marker for the Cows End of the Year Florida Counter-Racist Retreat. Nappy head hose Don Imus. And what does Mr. Fuller say? White people don't get fired. They get transferred. Don Imus would be a beautiful illustration. Uh, I will hurry so that I can nab other callers. Uh, folks have thoughts they would like to share, including the folks from the retreat, because they were here listening to the news clips as well. If they have other thoughts on the retreat, uh, important things that they want to make sure they share. I guess this is the end of the year, so think people can get comments about uh, what they saw for 2019. Man, we'd be doing our end of the year review, but we'll still be down here kicking it at the retreat. Uh, workplace racism did not happen yesterday and I'm so glad that I did not attempt to have that program because I said on the phone, I said, now, technically, our flight, we're supposed to land, or I am supposed to land before 4.30 yesterday. And that did happen all on time. We were supposed to be here uh, at where we are for the retreat. We are supposed to be here, I think, well before like 6, 7 o'clock sometime we didn't get here till like eight o'clock. There was some crazy multiple accidents out on the highway. We literally sat. It felt like just we're sitting on the highway. It would take like 20 minutes to move one mile. I literally watched the odometer because it was that taxing, like literally 20 minutes, one mile. But that notwithstanding, we made it through no mud. I can't say it enough. No mud, no mud. We didn't have to push any cars out. Nobody got mud on their clothes. We didn't come outside. Oh my goodness, the car has sunk five feet. None of that. Of course, we have the nice carport covered. Woo! Outstanding. Hopefully, it'll be great. And it's supposed to be, I'm hoping, 80 degrees on Tuesday. I looked at the weather. 
if we can get sunny and 80 degrees. Although, even with the rain today, it was like 75 degrees. In fact, I was so confused. I was hot. I went to turn the heat off. I thought the heat was on in the house. So I was going to find a thermostat to turn the heat off. And it said 78 degrees. And I'm looking at it like a Neanderthal. And it took me about five minutes to figure out, oh, wait a minute. The heat is not on. The air conditioning is actually on. It's like, what is, you know, they don't have those in Seattle. Like 65% of the houses in Seattle, regardless of income, do not have air conditioning in Seattle because it's rarely hot enough to have AC. So that's not even needed. So it's been forever since I've seen an air conditioner. It's like, what is this contraption? What is this? Oh, cold air. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Anyway, uh, I will make sure I get in because this is still the compensatory call in. Oh, I should, I didn't even tell, or I did tell the folks at the retreat. I have to make sure I share. I think this was a caller in Seattle. She said within the last, I think it was last week. She said on Netflix, don't F with cats. And she was talking about powerful white people and how they can mobilize on their free time to get things done. They track this killer down, this white killer, track him down on their free time. I watched it. It's fascinating. But what's many things stood out to me, but two things, two things. Number one, white people are scientific for the people who saw this is popular on Netflix. The place we're staying, they have Netflix accounts on all of the big, huge screens anyway. So uh, the white people in this film don't F with cats. They look at a video and the video shows a very small space. They scientifically evaluate every pixel of that space. What type of paint was used on the wall? What type of lamp is that? What brand of cigarettes are those? What type of vacuum cleaner is that? What are the only locations where you can get that vacuum cleaner? at? I mean, every single Detail. Mr. Fuller says we're not talking about dunces. White people are not ignorant about the practice of racism, white supremacy. They call themselves Internet nerds at being thorough, paying attention to detail. What was the other thing? I said it was two things I was going to say. Number one, attention to detail. Number two, oh, man, words are important. These white people looked at this white man. They looked at his online postings. What is he writing? And they just kept looking and kept looking and looked for patterns. What does Dr. uh, Welsing talk about? Pattern recognition. What are phrases that this person uses consistently? What punctuation patterns does this person exhibit? I mean, to be that attentive to detail that this person has unusual punctuation patterns space comma space most writers don't do that if i see that pattern i'm going to suspect it could be him pending on other phrases and things that are specific to this specific white person and i've seen that in other films i was telling the folks at the retreat i've seen that in other uh films that are about serial white serial killers where they end up being caught the unabomber words how they use words having very specific vernacular that stood out and that's how ended up how they got caught white people and they even have a term for that where you can pay attention to people's exact phrase they have a word for that words are important we heard that in the sound clip they interviewed two victims of racism talking about death row for this film talking about movies making movies about death they interviewed two victims of racism should have been a cowbell there retired firefighter said that for Alfred Woodard and they said that the guards end up killing someone who is likely a co-worker 
And I said, excuse me? Like, that was when I said, oh, man, I, I would have done the rewind. If we hadn't been on the retreat, I had so much going on, I would have did a rewind right there. Coworker. So, wait a minute. We, we're reading live from Death Row, which is not a book I'm enjoying. Mumia Abu-Jamal. You're telling me that if I am the guard here, that I look at Mumia as a coworker? Are you serious? <laughs> like, use correct language. He's in a cage. I have the key. He's not a coworker. Coworkers are at least there's some semblance of balance between us. This is not even close. You are subordinate to me. And in fact, I might end up killing you. You're not a coworker. Guilt or whatever else you want to call it aside. Words are important. With that thought, for this broadcast exclusively, if we could not use metaphors, if we could be direct about what we would like to say. I think the me- uh, retired fire force said this is a great kickoff for 2020. Right on. He's been exposed to football, so I use sports metaphors. You can pay attention. Just things people relate to by watching the metaphors. Racists, they relate to racism. That's why you have all that black cat, dark day, dark stain creme de la creme that's why you have all of those metaphors because they are accustomed to thinking about white as dominant and pure and fair and black as evil and vile and disgusting and all the rest of it they also use metaphors to practice deception they'll take two separate entities and insist that they are identical frequently that's not the case victims of white supremacy myself included we have been exposed to this misconduct we are still learning, including myself. Sometimes we'll substitute a metaphor comparison for actual logic because we're missing evidence. That's totally fine. Or it's fine to still be learning. It is not fine to substitute examples, metaphors, comparisons, analogies in place of evidence logic for this program. If we could be precise with what we would like to say, that would be appreciated. I will prompt about the metaphors. Number again, 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. I hope parents heard the segment with the mother who was talking about her child where... She was saying that they uh, they were threatening her child, calling him racist names, sexual abuse of her child. I hope parents heard that. We talk about the importance of talking to your children about sexual abuse and racism. I thought that segment was extremely important. We talked about last week reasons why I don't have children. There you go again. Uh, oh, and if folks could take about five minutes to share your thoughts, forgot. Five minutes to share your thoughts. That would be great. Make sure everybody gets at least one opportunity to speak and make sure you use your mute button. Uh, Make sure we're not picking up unnecessary background noise. Uh, If you are in a noisy environment, you can use your mute button. And then when you're ready to speak, unmute. We'll be ready to roll. Uh, Again, 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate and the first person that we will go to May 21 through May 24 be in Toronto 
Do you have commentary? You should be with us. Thank you, Gus. Greetings to you, callers, listeners, and participants over at the Yoga Retreat today. Um, I hope that you have a wonderful time. In fact, I know that you're having a wonderful time and to keep the positive energy flowing. Um, I'm excited. I can't wait until you come to Toronto. Uh, this will be absolutely amazing. Um, in terms of the listening to the clips, uh, good riddance to Da Dimas. Uh, that's, that's all I have to say about him. Um, and it's just interesting with the case of the school with the uh, young boy that is, was being sexually assaulted. The school could have uh, called in the authorities. The school could have done a lot of things to protect the young boy, but they're choosing not to. Um, similar to that with Don't F With Cats. My offspring had told me about that movie, and that's about the Magnata case. Um, in which uh, some of those footages were in Toronto. And um, he was able to skip to different cult countries internationally, and he had killed a few people. They could have caught him and dealt with him a long time ago, but again, they choose not to. The, the common trend is that whites choose to terrorize who they wish to, they choose to lock up who they wish to, um, and and there's just really uh, no method to what they choose to do. It, it's as if it's it's you know whether what they wish to do, they do what they wish to do, and and the laws don't really uh, apply except based on what they wish to do. I guess that's their law is do what thou wilt. Um, now, to uh, go into, um, again, the school where they're talking about uh, how they've come to this breakthrough study that um, they, they need to hire more non-white teachers to, um, to teach non-white children. Well, also in Toronto or in Canada, this has been an ongoing issue as well. They need to just hire Non, more non-white teachers, in particular black teachers. Um, there's been study after study after study, and there's really nothing stopping them from hiring black teachers except racism. <laughs> and the uh, whites are, are refusing to acknowledge this, and, um, and this is what they wish to do. Um, now... I know that workplace racism didn't occur yesterday. Um, however, I will urge um, uh, everyone to consider making a, a book, just getting a plain notebook and taking a snapshot of how your work interactions with whites are. And it's really interesting what information you can glean from it. Um, the way that I divided it was reasonable act and white reaction. So I have the reasonable act in the beginning and the white reaction at the bottom. So for example, reasonable act, I sat down in the cubicle to turn on computer, um, been there five seconds uh, upon arrival. And then underneath this says white's reaction and I just recorded all the different commentary that I 
her towards me during that time. So the commentary I heard were, she doesn't even say good morning. Why is she sitting here? So she takes the best seat in the house. I'm, it's funny how she thinks nothing's wrong. Now, um, another situation is I greet coworkers in the morning shortly after setting up for work or on way to a destination in the office. White's reaction, she's fake, she sounds fake, her high sounds fake, her high or hello sounds fake, or who's that, even though they know my name. Um, and then just just keep writing down all those recordings. And what I found from it is a lot of the stuff that they're saying, other than the fact that it's projection and um, well, short of terrorism, um, I've noticed how often I'm not even involved in any of this conversation. They're either having these conversations within their own head and then acting it out against me, or they're doing this to other non-whites as well, um, or they're having conversations with each other uh, and not verifying any information, which I guess that is the whole point um, of the terrorism, is not to bother uh, verifying the information, just carrying on with the lie um, to continuing terrorizing. So some of the things or some of the responses that I've uh, put together to help stay neutral um, are things such as, okay, in a neutral tone, or that may be, uh, that's interesting, um, sometimes no response, such as silence, um, especially if they're getting particularly terroristic, I'll put in, I've come to accept your faulty perception of me, and I'm fine with that, do what you're going to do or I've come to accept that you'll deliberately misinterpret anything I say, do what you, what's best for you. Um, and, uh, and saying it in a neutral tone, because after all, they're looking for um, a reaction. Um, another thing that you can also do is um, you can help short circuit um, when they're gearing up for terrorism. Uh, so the way that they usually start out with is that, um, if the, the abuser, the, the white terrorist, the, they start feeling low in energy, so they'll start um, to energize themselves by using pro provoking actions or statements. Um, when they do that, the purpose is to get the victim's adrenaline to spike as a reaction to cause chaos and distress. Um, so what you can do to short circuit that is, um, uh, is a meta anchor. Uh, which is an NLP or neuro linguistic programming term um, in which you um, say something to yourself or you do an action to um, with equally intense motion but to your emotion but to yourself to help short circuit it for me it's no and a flick of the wrist and that helps me brings me back to center um, now mind you some victims will try to reason out of distress um, whites, they're, they're, they're not, um, they're, they're not fixable. So, um, do away with the idealism. They're not fixable. They are permanently defective. There is no redeemable qualities with them just to recognize that as a reality. Um, what they'll do is, um, they will continue to do these, um, uh, provoking actions and statements 
to feed off your energy, and uh, and they'll also um, use these tactics for late for later. So um, again, short circuiting it by using a meta anchor and um, and keeping a neutral response. And I hope that was helpful. And I leave the line. Thank you, and have a great day. Be in Toronto, where the Cows 2020 Yoga Retreat should also be May 21 through May 24. Uh, workplace racism. There were so many people who had written in for workplace racism, or who thought workplace racism was happening yesterday. They didn't, uh, or forgot about the retreat, or just got confused with the you know breaking schedule. Uh, but man, I wanted to do workplace racism this week, but. We will be uh, ready to roll, white people permitting. Hopefully we can get back safe and we'll be back normal time and everything uh, for next Thursday. Workplace racism came up here immediately. We've only been here a few hours. And as it was in Virginia, major theme, workplace. Matt, Thomas (laughs) took the words out of my mouth. Thomas in New York was right there, had emailed me the chocolate and everything. Delectable Negro. I was ready for workplace racism and Got to sit on it for a week. Yes, sir. Thomas in New York. Oh, man. Thank you, Gus. Um, John Imus, may he rest in piss for eternity. Nappy-headed hoes. Unbelievable. Yeah, he got, not only did he get, um, they don't get fired, they get, um, he got a raise. He got more money afterwards. It made him a bigger star. Um, the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. Uh, first time in Olympic history, transgender women, that's uh, men who perceive themselves as women, will be able to compete against 100% women uh, in this Olympics. The Olympic rule is as long as the athlete can prove that for 12 months straight, they took chemicals to suppress their testosterone, um, they can compete against the other women. I just don't think this is logical. Um, but, um, time, you know, racism, white supremacy, what can you say? Um, you know, I've been realizing something. I had to go, I generally go to a, um, Target, you know, to do my household needs shopping. And, um, I generally, you know, take my card. I walk right over the short bridge here to go to the Target in the Bronx. And, um, you know, I had to get something. And they didn't have it at the Target I go to. And um, I had to go downtown, you know, downtown Manhattan, more affluent neighborhood Target to get something. And the experience was such so different. And I noticed that my whole life, every time they put the same thing in the black area and or the place where black people frequent, and you go to another outside of that area and go to that same establishment, it's totally um, a different experience. Um, and it has to be by design. You know, like I think even these corporations are in on this. Um, you know, it, the computers will be slower. You know, the scanners won't have the right barcodes. It, it'll be something wrong. Or it doesn't matter if it's a restaurant, you know, fast food, of course, which is in both areas. I know it's Regan, but I'm just saying that's one place where you can test it at and just see the total different experience. Um, you know, Trump, the media portrayal of Trump as the only 
racist in the history of American politics. Um, it's, it's really, you know, I know he put out the page for the Central Park. He didn't want black tenants, you know, and that's what we expect from a racist white supremacist. But um, the draconian, as they call it, crime bill, to which Bernie and Biden both signed, you know, we were super predators. You know, I mean, to me, that's the ultimate sign. I mean, that, that's a real racist white supremacist. But I think that I'm glad that he signed the bill to release some of these people for these crimes that they didn't kill anyone, you know. Um, even the clip you played with South Korea, I said, man, um, I think that he had a summit to try to unify the two Koreas, you know. Um, so I just think that the portrayal of him as the racist president, when we look at the history, he's seeming to be one of the least racist, especially, I think, his policy on immigration, which benefits black people more so than anyone else. Um, I talked about this earlier in the week, the uh, MIT article, U.S. government study confirms most facial recognition systems are racist. I'm just going to read two points, and that's it. Um, for one-on-one matching, one-on-one matching is like how you open your phone and stuff. You know, you, they match your face to your picture. And um, it says most systems had a higher rate or a fourth positive match for Asian and African-American faces. Caucasian faces sometimes factor of 10 or even 100. So it's from 10 to 100% accurate, more accurate to, to do white people's faces than black people. That's pretty much what they're saying here. And it says um, one-to-many match, and one-to-many is when they try to pick you out of crowd, just pick your face out. Um, it says systems have worse false positive rate for African-American women, which puts this population at the highest risk for, for being falsely accused of crimes. So um, that's what this report said. And I'm mute my line, guys. Thank you. What? <clears throat> Much obliged, Thomas, in New York, uh, to your shopping experience at uh, Target. Uh, the late Dick Gregory, he used to mention, and I think he was the first person that brought it to my attention, that it was found out that Coca-Cola, I believe it was Coca-Cola specifically, but it was a, a soft drink company. They were taking expired soft drinks and putting them in stores that mostly black people shopped at and it was something attention to detail it was something about these uh, sodas where it's a chemical that they put cows uh, yoga retreat we don't have any sodas water tea but it's a chemical in the sodas uh, that becomes a mild poison after it expired after it sat for a while and got old so what they were doing and they didn't just take these sodas once they were expired and just throw them into the nigra areas they took them and they put a new label on which again you can't be ignorant if you stopped and took the time to put a new label on and then you shovel them off to the niggers oh drink up yes yes half off no problem give you a discount on them they're great sodas for all uh and then oh you've got all the hmm all these diseases and uh, so if that when this was Dick Gregory and you can look this up online because I did and they have the exact reports and everything that's why I said I think this is Coca-Cola I'll look and see if I can find it again uh, but so if that was happening with the sodas 
I'm pretty sure that that's not the only company that's doing it. I'm sure Target or wherever else, I'm pretty sure that they know, oh, this is a store where a lot of niggers shop at. We'll make sure that everything, exactly what he said, register might be a little slow. Barcodes might not match up at this one. Make them take an extra 20 minutes in the checkout stand. Waste a little bit of their time and energy. And have them frustrated. Make us a whole lot of their time and energy because they'll come to the store and it'll be a waste. And then they'll have to take a long time to get out and then have to go to another store. Much obliged, Thomas in New York. Uh, other folks, uh, if we have not heard from you at all, uh, if you have commentary to share, star six one, uh, if you would like to chime in. Can I be heard? Greetings, M. Han DC, with us in Virginia. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Greetings. So I happen to be in the car, but I am parking. So. I, I think All I. Right. Yes, okay. sir. Yes, sir. Okay. Cool. So, um, greetings to everyone, and uh, I'm happy everybody made it to the retreat uh, there in Florida. I'm sure. Uh, well, I heard that you're having a good time, so that's good. I hope you continue to enjoy yourself. I wish I was on this side. Um, but yes, so I wanted to mention about you're talking about the expired foods. It's not funny, but. I was working for this trip. Well, I've worked for a lot of churches um, in different capacities. Um, Music is one, but uh, at one of the churches I was doing music for, I was also working for their nonprofit feed the, um, feed the popular, feed the black population organ. I mean, um, nonprofit organization. And so I would drive the, the van, the church van, and I would um, spend the day going to all of the East End, which is the where the white people are. I would go to the um, food stores, like to Whole Foods and to all these different places. And they would give me food um, to bring over to the church to give out to the black people. But all the food was expired. And so the drinks, like um, there would be a whole lot of really nice drinks, but I wouldn't drink them. Because when I, I can see that you can see that it's fermented because it's starting to, it's almost about to burst out of the, out of the container because of the fermentation. And, um, as it ferments, the more pressure builds up. And so once you pop it, you get that, you know, disgusting, oh, this is fermented pop. You know, when you, or when you open the top, you, <laughs> people drink it and that's not this, oh, it's disgusting. And so is the food and the meat. It's like, how old is this meat? And, um, and they put it in the, um, um, they, they, they store it in their freezers. And I think some of these meats have been in the freezers for over a year or more. Um, so, but it's really interesting. Um, no, it's not interesting. It's horrible. Um, but yeah, that's that. And then I wanted to mention, um, Thomas's program. Um, uh, I listened to that Friday that passed and wait yesterday. And so, um, you were talking about the men who are going to compete in the Olympics and, um, be women or, or act as if they're women and compete in the women Olympics. And I guess the women could do the same thing for the men's Olympics. Well, I, um, you asked me, uh, you know, well, what did I think about that? Cause we're, you know, we're talking or whatever. Uh, and so my thought is that they're going to make black people the primary group that is um switching over to the genders the different sides 
um, uh, men, there'll be a whole lot of black men uh, playing in women's sports and beating women. And then the children will start to idolize those black men, um, just like they idolize the um, homosexual rappers. They'll idolize these homosexual men dressing as women may have gotten their penis cut off. And men and women are different. A man is a man with, with his genitals or without his genitals. That's a man. Um, and there's, I, I mentioned uh, Fallon Fox, and uh, I think it was Raymond. Uh, uh, he was actually talking about him. But I wasn't sure if he was, if that was the, the uh, person. Anyway, Fallon Fox, I think is the name, beats these women so bad in UFC. I mean, like, it's really brutal. I watched all the fights, and it's, um, it's really brutal. But yeah, it's, um, we need to end white supremacy. The last thing, I'm an American, and uh, that's all. Thank you. Gender, <clears throat> excuse me, gender confusion. I did find uh, the report to substantiate, but I want to say again, I didn't first hear this. Uh, I'm about to read from the New York Times, but I first heard this from Dick Gregory, just giving proper credit who used to read 20 newspapers. He used to brag about that uh, in a constructive way. Dr. Welsing too. New York times uh, workers contend Coke sent old soda to poor neighborhoods. May 19, 2002 uh, from the shade of a loading dock, watching the big rigs shed payloads of leftover Coca-Cola for supermarkets in black. Na- I, th- I said it was Coke. I said that right. Yeah. Supermarkets in the black neighborhoods of Dallas. William D. Wright says he learned how to keep quiet and do as he was told, man, we didn't have workplace racism this week. This is for years. He says he stripped expired soda cans from their cardboard sheaths, stuffed them into fresh boxes with new dates stamped on the side, then piled them on store shelves as if they were new. Now, again, the New York Times, it said for years this was done. As long as they had no leaks, then the cans were sometimes repackaged too. It was all part of what his co-workers called the fire sale. So they had codified language for this. I knew what we were doing was not right, said Mr. Wright, a Coke delivery man for 14 years. But every time I brought it up, I'd hear, I'm the boss. You do what I say. That sounds like something I've heard before. Coke's headquarters is in Atlanta. They'll bring that up in the Mecca. Uh, marching with bullhorns and spreading their message over talk radio, dozens of Coke drivers, plant workers, and salespeople are accusing their bosses of inching up profits for almost a decade by pawning off expired soda cans and bottles on minority communities. They, that was in the sound clip. They said majority minority areas. That's in North Carolina where they don't have non-white teachers. Uh, rather than throw old drinks away, the workers contend factory managers ordered them to salvage truckloads of old unsold drinks from stores in predominantly white areas only to cart them to the poorest areas where shoppers are seen as just as thirsty, but a lot less discriminating. It looks good to the naked eye, said John Wayne Whaleford. John Wayne, we were just talking about, yeah, anyway. A Coke driver for the last 14 years, but the people in the community don't know what they're buying i'll stop there it goes i'll post it in fact just because i did say coke so uh eating well might help your memory a little bit how about that uh we don't have any sodas here and we have talked about being mindful about what you eat taking the time to read the ingredients what is this what's the expiration date why am i getting this what is this doing for my body even if the coke wasn't expired that should be an for a whole lot of reasons like nah i'm good uh, and what that cows, 
counter-racist yoga retreat we did Virginia in February we are in Florida now looking May 21 excuse me May 21st through the 24th this is exactly the type of thing we talk about I say that all the time you want to minimize the opportunities for racists to practice racism on your plate in your cup on your fork spoon chopsticks minimize those opportunities I was just saying that today when I I got up this morning and I made my sweet potato pie that was the first thing I did I went about making those pies and just having your hands on those sweet potatoes I mean hey they do tamper with the soil and and produce but you try to minimize that as much as you can that Coca-Cola has got a long list of ingredients you go into the store and white people have prepared it and done this and done that you give them a lot of opportunities to tamper with your food try to minimize that as much as you can there is logic behind why i say let's try to minimize eating out there's logic behind self-care what you eat be mindful about that logic cows counter racist yoga retreat what we eat is a huge part of white supremacy racism it's not just the target it's not just the coke white people aren't ignorant it can't be these things happening and white people are ignorant about racism what do you mean black neighborhood i don't know where the minority community is uh six zero five three one three five one six four the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate can i be heard oh caller in virginia she was with us for retreat number one yes ma'am and workplace racism she has such important information uh did you were you updating us on workplace racism or did you have other things you wanted to share um other things i wanted to share but i did want to thank you for reading my email last week and thank all of the um, callers and listeners who gave feedback on what to do and of course as this uh, case proceeds i will certainly be sharing as much as i can to keep everyone um, informed because I consider this to be an informational gathering case that I'm embarking upon. Um, But I did want to say greetings. I know you all will have a wonderful time at the retreat over the next few days. Um, I took a yoga class this morning at 930 in solidarity (laughs) with you all at my gym. So Um, Namaste. I know you guys are going to have a great time. Um, Regarding the clips, I did have a few things that that I thought were tacky about the Trump criminal justice reform segment. It seemed that as the person was communicating on, you know, these different reforms that were happening, it felt like it was perhaps insincere. And then, of course, they mentioned Kim Kardashian and Jared Kushner and that's where the tackiness really um, came in because it seems like why would you mention those two individuals and in something that really doesn't have anything to do with them. I know they tried to, you know, make it seem like they are relevant to that story. But I also thought that the numbers that they gave seemed very low. 3,000 people are being affected by this reform and 3,000 people are being, you know, let go prematurely or, or early for good behavior that seems like a low number because we know that 2 million black males are incarcerated. So to help 3000 just seems like a very low number. And then even the dates that they were talking about, they were talking about um, people who were affected by crimes in the nineties. So if if you committed a crime in the nineties 
and you're being, you know, released and you've already served 30 years, you know, it just seems like, are they really doing much help at all? Um, also, they mentioned that uh, most of the uh, the reform is happening at the federal level and at the state level, the numbers are kind of unaffected. And we know that the state levels are where the more significant um, issues are and more people are being affected at that at those levels. So I just kind of felt like that um, segment seemed like the individual who was who was speaking was self-serving and congratulating themselves for helping in this issue, but really not helping very much. That was just my VGQ on that segment. Um, also, the clip that mentioned the need for black teachers, I think it ties in with the whole prison stuff because we know that black teachers are needed, but now black teachers have almost been wiped out and white women are the teachers and we know the link between the schools and the prisons. So while they're saying that they want more um, teachers who are black to teach students, we know that that's not really true. They like the system the way it is because it feeds into their, you know, plans for our black uh, children to go to prison, you know, after they, you know, are 16, 17, 18 years old. Um, and then the last thing I want to mention is that I have been listening in the archives um, to Edward Baptist, The Half Has Never Been Told. And I just want to thank you, Gus. Your work over these 10 years is so incredible because now here it is, you know, going into 2020. And I know you guys did that study, I guess, in 2016. And I hadn't even heard of you at that time. Um, but I can go back and listen and make my way through that book. And it's been really incredible to listen to that book and to hear, you know, everything that people shared, you know, years ago and know that it's very um, helpful and still relevant. So keep up the good work and enjoy the retreat. Thanks, everybody. Much obliged, Mommy in Virginia. Keep up uh, your self-care as you go through this uh, learning ordeal. Learn as much as you can, share as much as you can, and take uh, enormously good care of yourself. I thought the uh, Kardashian reference was kind of tacky, trashy, terroristic. It doesn't get any better than tacky. That's exactly what I thought when I heard that. I think some of the folks here even thought that uh, were remarked when uh, I was like, she Kim Kardashian is the counter racist of the decade, isn't she? Like she, they said she got. Uh, I think it was Curtis Flowers that case, and somebody else. She spoke up and got them out. Like she just, hey, this this is just what I do. I get niggers out of greater confinement. Look, I got Kanye too. Look at that, counter racist of the year, Kim Kardashian. Uh, the number again, six zero five, three one three, five one, six four. The code. Five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate. I can say it. Hope oh, well. I reckon if we're in Toronto this May, I'll be on Eastern Time again. But wow, we compensatory call in starting at nine and ending at midnight. Wow, that is uh. If I lived out here permanently, the time for this broadcast would change. Absolutely. Anyway, uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have comments, uh, questions, observations. Grant, while other folks get their thoughts together, uh, we... 
it's even hard to give this I know we'll be here this Thursday for a very short uh, segment with Mumia live from death row finishing that up and then we should be here for workplace racism back normal time uh, this Thursday oh excuse me this Friday uh, 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific uh, we'll be here for the retreat uh, I guess it's conceivable there could be uh, another broadcast before all is done but uh, hopefully we'll be retreating doing yoga eating well recipes having constructive uh, exchange of views uh, we have some cooking workshops counter racist workshops hopefully lots of fun and relaxation and maybe even some sunshine it was a little radiant at first but again it's been 75 degrees it's overcast today so no gripes weather wise I will take my trade with Seattle uh, let's see can I say something else real quick Thomas in um, just, just live um, they just reported that it's been like four or five um, rabbis or, or Jewish people stabbed in a synagogue and they had looking for a black man for doing it. It's in Rockland County. Um, so I'm seeing this as a trend now. Um, Jersey City. Now um, they've been pushing all over the news um, showing black men walking up and punching these Jewish people from behind. And, you know, they're looking for all these Jewish attacks all over the news in New York. And now you have this. It just doesn't seem um, like this is just happening by coincidence. I'll be my line. Thank you. Goodness. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I, I, I had an audio clip. I was on my counter racist grind, even as I was flying cross country, thousands, literally thousands of miles. Uh, man, I looked at that map so many times like, man, I looked at Seattle and I looked at Orlando. I looked at Seattle and I looked at Orlando. It's like it is difficult to fly much further and not leave the continent. Anyway, uh, I was still on my counter racist grind. I had an audio clip on the uh, so-called hate crimes in New York. I think I even put it in in the promotion for the broadcast. I was going to play it. And then Don Imus died and I had to pick because it was getting long. And I said, you got to pick one. Uh, and I picked Don Imus because I thought that was important because uh, it was a lot of racism, even in reporting of his death. Sometimes they didn't even talk about the nappy head hose thing and him losing his job. They just skipped right over that. <laughs> you don't get doesn't count anyway. Um, but I didn't play it. But I saw that and I thought that was really important for a lot of reasons. Uh, and then to have this happen live on the program. Uh, I'm just reading from CBS, their uh, news report that came out a few minutes ago. Oh, what staggered me. I went to try to read this. And so then on the right, it's got the other news stories. And so they got one Don Imus legend. Uh, but the one at the top upstate New York man arrested for sexually abusing a goat. I said, what? And it's a white man, of course. <sighs> Sexual perversion. So back to uh, multiple people have reportedly been stabbed in an attack on a rabbi's home in New York's Rockland County. CBS 2's Tony Aiello has confirmed a man entered Rabbi Rottenberg's shul in Monzi and stabbed three people Saturday night. The man reportedly pulled out a machete to attack the victims during a Hanukkah celebration. The suspect reportedly chased after victims as they fled the home before, before running off and escaping in a nearby vehicle. First responders are on the scene and are treating the victims. The extent of the injuries are not known at this time. black identity extremists and four more years 
Very, very easy. No contest. Four more years. Line up any ladder you like. Uh, let's see. Uh, for sure, because we are not doing any overtime on this here day. Uh, if you are with us and think you might have questions, uh, suggestions, offerings to contribute, don't wait till the last five minutes. Go ahead and speak up uh, so that we can get you in. We are not doing any extra chit chatting today. Uh, let's see. while I give some of the folks who we have missed totally uh, an opportunity to share, uh, I will say we did have quite a few folks. uh, Yeah, that is that we had quite a few folks uh, who were hoping that they could have been down here chilling uh, with us for the Florida retreat. 2019 was an unpleasant year from start to finish. Uh, And (laughs) it was so unpleasant that I wasn't even able to, promote as vigorously and make sure that everybody who uh, wanted to come had all the information to double and triple check to make sure that they had all the details that they needed if they were still considering and all the rest of it it was wow Uh, it was more than challenging that being said the retreat I think is worth it Uh, relaxation self care is extremely important in fact I forgot Don Imus came up with Gwen Eiffel. We read uh, we read uh, the breakthrough and she talked about years before it got to Nappy Head Ho, she talked about how he was insulting with her. Uh, how he called her like the maid at the White House. Uh, she was a press secretary, an accomplished uh, journalist before her early death. That's why self-care is so important. Uh, but she talked about that and she said, you know, she wished things uh, that he had been fired, that people had been more attentive to his racist conduct towards her before it even got to uh, this. We read that or I could post that one as well because we spent all that time reading more important than watching television. Get that in. And since it was mentioned, uh, the half has never been told is almost in my top 10. Maybe it should be. But wow, there's so much detail uh, in that book about racism, white supremacy. I mean, really thorough did man I said that about don't F with cats you can say the same thing about the half has never been told where he has a whole section talking about how whites would sit down and swap torture techniques what's the best way to break a nigra oh this you got the one where you pull their toes behind and then you screw something and oh like and then you got the and it would have diagrams and everything reading more important than watching television have and it gets mentioned so many times any book like that where it gets referenced a lot in a constructive manner for revealing truth about white supremacy racism tends to get closer to being in my top 10 of constructive books and I think the half has never been told has been mentioned many many times over the years since we began we in fact it's so long we started reading that book in 2015 and it carried over into 2016 but it was worth the investment Edward Baptist wow the half has never been told Uh, let's see are folks still spectating that's going to be one of my thoughts down here while we're on the retreat folks still spectating or getting their thoughts together waiting to get to an area where they can speak perhaps
Hi, Gus. Be in Toronto again. We'll be there with her May 21 to May 24. Yes, I just wanted to let you know that I was I was just um, kicked off the line by the system, so I've just re-entered. So I'll just uh, give some time for any other callers who haven't had a chance as of yet. Right on. Much obliged. I think that a few people, at least it seemed that way, uh, some people were booting off and then coming back. I'm not sure if it was interference. We did have some people who reported that uh, more recently. So thankfully it has been uh, behaved since we have been here in Florida. The Wi-Fi, uh, Wi-Fi has behaved. Phone line has behaved thus far. Hopefully that won't be a problem either. That has been huge upgrade. We didn't have Wi-Fi uh, at the retreat in Virginia. So it was really difficult to be able to let people know we were broadcasting as normal and all that. And have Wi-Fi this time, so it's been much, much easier to coordinate things and even share photographs. You can see pictures of the vegan sweet potato pie. Absolutely amazing. Chef Nadira, you can see uh, photographs, I think, of the, is the lasagna? I think the lasagna is there as well. We had amazing lasagna, veggie lasagna for dinner tonight, salad, spectacular. Uh, Let's see. While the folks that have not shared that we haven't heard from at all are still waiting. Uh, did you say you had uh, another comment you wanted to add be in Toronto? Um, sure. I thank you, Gus. Um, in addition to the um, Magnota um, case through the um, Don't F with Cats uh, documentary on Netflix, um, similarly, there was the Paul Bernardo also known as Paul Teal and Carla Hamalka case. They were also known as the Ken and Barbie. Um, Paul Bernardo, also known as Paul Teal, um, was first known as the Scarborough Rapist. Uh, but even prior to that, his dad was known as a rapist. Um, and um, the reason why Paul Bernardo and Carla Hamalka um were uh became sensationalized news is because um it came through the uh court proceedings that Carla Homarka Carla Homolka and Paul Bernardo had been instrumental in Carla's sister's death. Um so uh Paul had um had uh committed incest with the sister. Um by marriage um as a sister sister in law um and also uh he had kidnapped um Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey, of which Carla Hamolka had opportunity to let them go um but she chose not to and was fully participant in in the in the torture um However, what ended up happening is she ended up doing a plea deal of which she only served about 10 years, and she is currently married to her defense lawyer, um, obtained her her um, her uh, bachelor's or master's degree, one of the two, in nursing, um, and has three children living somewhere in the Caribbean. Um, and Paul uh, Bernardo is uh, currently serving life in prison. Um, but again, it just goes to show that uh, 
in terms of um, whatever justice is, it cannot rely on on whites to provide it uh, because it's um, it's counterintuitive to to what they are. So uh, thanks, and I leave the line. White terrorists abound. White killers, uh, serial killers. Uh, the wisdom of psychopaths. Uh, uh, he was a, the white man. Uh, oh, I can. Sam Bachman. Wisdom of psychopaths. He has a video on YouTube. Uh, he talks all about that. They said the same thing with uh, the "Don't f with cats" white killer. Uh, that he was a narcissist wanting all that attention that's such a core component of white culture white uh, identity uh, but the white killers uh, she talked about this tandem and white women do it better the white woman oh no I, I was just dragged along you know and then she's out while the, the white fella's still there uh, but that stood out even as I was flying now they say a whole lot of people have uh, fear of flying I forgot the name for that but they have a lot of people who have a lot of anxiety around flying unless I've been misinformed and uh, I mean hey it could be dangerous 9-11 and all that for a lot of reasons you would think maybe on the plane like let's have something soothing you know if not yoga like calm you down make us laugh you know get Chris Rokes to tell some jokes about black people and how he hates niggers anything no they got movies of people being killed left and right and guy comes with a butcher knife that's about two feet long and whammo stabs it at someone's back it's like what so many things Mr. Fuller was talking about that like so many things get normalized in a system of white supremacy that demands massive violence like we are at like 30,000 feet and we gotta be watching someone butchering folks like why and then they'll then the transition they stopped that film I looked on somebody else's monitor and they had Surviving R. Kelly Part 2 I didn't even know there was a sequel but it was on our flight from an uh coming out to to Florida flying into Orlando you can watch surviving R. Kelly part 2 you got butchering and black rapists at 30,000 feet global known universe not uh, located isolated to the United States known universe you don't even have to be on the earth per se and white supremacy racism abounds Uh, let's see other folks comments questions they wanted to contribute Grand assume folks are satisfied or doing whatever they're doing with their uh, 2000 concluding 2019 uh, plans. Uh, if folks are just going to hang out and be quiet, we are certainly kicking it at the uh, retreat. It's not no need to just hang out for you all to uh, do nothing. Uh, we'll give you all another five or so to see if you are just going to spectate uh, or if folks have any other questions, comments, thoughts that they want to add in uh, before we shuffle along. Uh, let's see. The book club, I guess that would be one thing I would encourage folks. Can I be heard? Uh, well, yes, sir, uh, MIDC. The book club, we're almost done. We we'll basically are done. We just have the afterword for Live from Death Row. So people can be thinking of the next book. I think Draft the Mania suggested Dirt. Uh, we had someone suggest, I saw uh, Clarence Thomas's 
autobiography, which is supposed to be really interesting. I think he talks about his childhood being called ABC, America's Blackest Child, uh, and some other components. Uh, we had some investors who saw that and thought that it would be a constructive read. Uh, so I have to think about that. Clarence Thomas Dirt, there's a book on white women in Nazi Germany that I know Dr. Welsing would definitely want us to read. She encouraged so much of studying Nazi Germany. There were quite a few. There were at least four or five different books that I saw that seemed like possibilities. So if you have a thought, share. We should be done with Mumia's book really, really soon. Uh, let's see. Imhan DC. Yes, you should be with us. Did you have commentary, sir? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay, my phone just like started acting weird. As soon as I started talking, because I had said something, and then my phone like clicked me into this other type of funny program-looking thing on my phone, and then so I had to hang up. Um, and like the other time I called, um, when I was complaining about my phone um, doing weird things, it, it not only was the line, you know, doing whatever it was doing, where you know where the phone line was. But my telephone, like like programs on my telephone started um, activating real fast or, and like popping up screens, popping up, popping up. Um, so that's that. And then so what I wanted to say was I'm an American. White people are not Americans. And that we should agree that white people need to leave America. And that if white people are not in America, it would be more difficult to rape our women, our children, and our men. And also, it would be more difficult to shoot us and kill us. It would be a, a little more difficult to poison the airs because um, they, they're using airplanes. They have to do it every single day to make it an overcast. There was an overcast here, too, but it was very warm. Like, I, have my, I don't have a coat on, and I'm walking outside, but I'm on my block. Um, but anyway, it would be more difficult for them to do a lot of things if white people are not here. And then we would, it wouldn't solve white supremacy completely, but it would relieve a lot of our problems. Thank you. Much obliged, M. Han DC. Uh, let's see, I think, is that Draftomania? I think that's Draftomania. We've missed you uh, totally. We haven't heard you from all. Draft Mania, did you have commentary? Mm, sure. My guest, um, my guest, I hope you're enjoying yourself at your um, retreat and your um, the other guests will stay with you. Um, yeah, I was just going to speak to the um, issue with the book there. It's not about Nazi Germany. History. It's a book about a social history as seen through the, the uses um, and abuses of there. And basically, it's going into... Um, the evidence of, um, you know, um, how Europe, throughout history, how they were uncleanly and how they didn't wash and clean and how they had to go about using utensils and things like that. So it's like a whole history of how, you know, um, uh, a historical perspective begins with the Romans and answer to the body odor and baths and things like that. So it's um, really interesting. Um, I read it um, um Doing um work um doing a study group I was involved in um years and years and years ago and then I read it again um maybe about like five years ago so very very interesting and it does just definitely speak to um the behaviors it's like a, um you know a study about um 
the social behaviors around European people and why they are, why they act the way they act. So I just thought it would be interesting to read. And also, I have another suggestion also. I was listening to this um, book called um, Snakes and Shoots, and um, it would be a really good um, book for, um, it speaks to um, uh, workplace racism. It's about narcissism, narcissist um, at, on, on job, and um, it's by a guy named Robert Hare. So that's another suggestion. And also the other book that I sent you, um, which was, um, oh, yeah, this book right here, um, uh, The Dirty, on Amazon, they have it for $203, but you can get it um, in a... Um, you can get it in the libraries, too, because I got the book in the libraries. But um, getting back to the other books that I sent you about the um, Jim Jones, I think it was Suicide, and uh, no, what is Salvation and Suicide, the one that I sent you. And you sent me the PDF for it. So that's also another suggestion. Enjoy the rest of your um, daily sleep. Thanks. Much obliged, Draftomania. Reading is more important than watching television. Uh, yes, I got your suggestion on the book Dirt, but there is a separate book uh, on the women in Nazi journey, Germany. I just don't have the title of it in front of me, but yeah, that's separate from separate from Dirt, which also looked interesting. Uh, let's see. Uh, other folks, uh, if we have folks we missed totally again. Please don't wait till the last five minutes. Uh, if other folks that are with us, if you have observations, questions, you want to make sure you get it. Suggestions, uh, feel free. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Augusta host, the listeners and callers. Uh, it's uh, beautiful to hear that um, victims of racism are engaged in constructive eating and doing yoga. Uh, thank you very much, Gus, for putting that together, uh, for helping victims of racism uh, do more constructive things and doing our best to help us engage in doing our best to replace racism, white supremacy with justice. I wanted to speak on some of the things that I've been uh, analyzing throughout the week, but on the audio segment, I think there was a segment where I think it was a white family that was mistaken that they had the wrong address for something that they had online or something like that. Was their last name? Did it say that it was shade, like a shadow shade? Gus, or? Uh, let me double check. Let me double check. Give me a second to make sure I'm getting the name correctly. Or I guess it might take me more than a second if you want to. Okay. All right. So you're talking uh, the family where the white supremacists, they got their inf- their house posted on the white supremacist website. That's the one you're talking about. Yes, sir. Okay. The uh, it says uh, the Dexter family. Oh, okay, okay. All right, 
because I'm not sure was that I guess was that a white family or black family. Okay, a black family. Okay, all right. That I thought that story was um, very interesting because uh, I, I I never heard of a story like that, and because I know you have all of these types of forums and websites like Stormfront and uh, et cetera, uh, and I did get to look at the author, the black author, on the how to be an anti-racist. And it was definitely a lot of confusion. Um, see, like at the beginning, the mayor, him and the mayor, <clears throat> and definitely the person is <clears throat> similar to Tim Wise, uh, the, the white mayor, um, in, the, in the way that he's speaking about racism and everything like that. Just I'm trying to be as direct as I can. So he was basically they were in a public library downtown. So he was asking them, you know, well, you know, racism, we definitely have to have a definition, but they didn't say the definition. They waited until they got to the, the Q and a, the questions and answers segment, at least almost before I got to it. And it was a very uh, vague, abstract definition. He said a racist is, someone who support racist policies. Now, uh, I think it's another portion to it. It was a very short definition, but that was the part that I remember. I'm like, that can apply. Like, what what does that even mean? Because he didn't even say what he meant by racist policies. So uh, he, he used an analogy of you can have some people working at a factory now, he didn't say the, the racial classification of the person at the factory. He just said, well, you have people working at a factory and you have the white people making $12 an hour, the black people making $10 an hour. And then he said the Latinx, Latinx people making $8 an hour. And he said, let's say the, uh, the supervisor of the factory uh, is white and they're all supposed to be making $30 an hour. So I don't know where he was going with this, but I thought about when you said, you know, the, um, the metaphors and the analogies, it could, you, it could mislead you, you know, when you're trying to hear someone's viewpoint, especially when it has to do with racism. So I guess he was trying to say about elite whites and how white people support white supremacy and thinking that they're going to get to the, uh, the uh, higher tiers in the company in the factory. I guess he was trying to use the factory analogy to, I guess, explain how he thinks, I guess, racism um, is practiced. Because a black person also got up there and said that, you know, black people can't be racist. <laughs> and then uh, he, he, he actually made the point that he said that he says that black people can be racist. Uh, and the examples he used, and I know you mentioned Clarence Thomas. He he mentioned Clarence Thomas. So like, uh, basically, he was saying that Clarence Thomas helped, I guess, Al Gore lose the election, and then he used R. Kelly as an example. So I'm like, I didn't know where all of that was going, um, but it it was confusion. I, in my opinion, I think that was being put out 
but I know it's uh, VGQ. That's his viewpoint and everything like that. And my last one I wanted to mention was the, I think it's the, the, the I guess the, the game that I guess where they holding up the white power supposed to be the white power signs. And I agree with that black male. I think it was a black male on the segment where he was like, he, well, he used the metaphor, not buying it. I would just rather say, I think racism is being practiced and white people are trying to deceive me saying, Oh, it's just a game. Or, I don't know. He said the circle game. I mean, white people are very clever at coming up with ways to codify words and actions and uh, we get caught they see us on tv holding up these signs just say it was we was playing a game and let's see how many people will believe it and even if they don't believe it we'll still say come on we'll let you play with us next time you know we we, we don't like being so serious all the time so uh that's all i have for now thanks for allowing me to share r kelly is a racist 2020, R. Kelly, I guess with R for racist, and then Clarence Thomas is a racist. I thought they said he was an Uncle Tom. He was an Uncle Tom. He's a racist. America's blackest child. I'd be angry too. <laughs> if I was, uh, it's been a rough, rough experience, man. That's why I said we need to read Clarence Thomas's autobiography. Um, did, anyway. That right there is exactly what I said. When I hear any black victim of white supremacy, non-white person, authors a book on racism and white people are, oh man, this is awesome. Almost without fail. I can't even really think of an exception other than like warmth of other sons, maybe. It's a few, but it's very rare. Generally speaking, white people, oh, this is a great book that a black person wrote. Uh, and that's not even a book that's specifically talking about my, uh, racism. She's talking about the migration. So that's not even, if they're talking directly about racism, it is not going to be accurate at all. Follow the logic. Black people, or you practice definition, and then they don't give you one, or they give you a definition that's convoluted, not accurate, doesn't make sense. And then they give you a definition for racism. You support racist policies. Well, you had a whole lot of black people other than Clarence Thomas who came out and said, man, that slick Willie got me on the super predators. I thought we needed to do this to help out the black community, so-called. And it just ended up throwing a whole lot of black people in jail. I sure am sorry. I I got that one wrong, man. And they had to come out and apologize and do all that. So I'm supposed to say that that victim of racism is a racist. Because they got fooled by Slick Willie? Is that the most accurate way of describing that? You can come to your own conclusion doing that rhetorically on purpose. Follow logic. That's what I encourage. Don't follow people. Follow logic. Mr. Fuller says that all the time for a reason. You have a brain computer. That's the way Dr. Welsing said it. You have a brain computer for a reason. Racists uh, train us not to use it. And definitely think a lot. You see white people saying, oh, yeah, this black person here is an expert on racism. You should read this person's book and that'll help solve this problem. Oh, man, you should ask a lot of questions. Counter racist logic should be used to the highest degree. Man, thank you for the update on that one. Uh, Other folks, if we missed you totally, we are last few getting close to the end. So. 
do not wait if you think you have a comment question suggestion you would like to share uh, any other folks uh, have suggestions thoughts offerings they want to add in I can't I can't think of any victim who's had a probably a more memorable 2019 that they'll never forget than R. Kelly. I mean, I, that's a very interesting person to choose. Yes, sir. Greetings, Doug. Greetings to all the callers as well as the listeners. This is Yame in the basket. Um, just getting off the plantation. Finally had an opportunity to call in uh, live. Usually I'm checking the archives. But I didn't get a chance to listen to the clips at the beginning, but I, uh, I just wanted to extend my gratitude to everyone who's contributed to uh, myself being less confused over this past year. Um, I have a report on a, a series of incidents that's been involving attempted counter-racist parenting. My, my offspring, uh, small children, have been suffering from the flu, which has been going around a lot, especially here in Nebraska. Uh, my two youngest also have uh, sickle cell, and my four-year-old son caught the flu Dealing with that as well as the sickle cell ended up catching pneumonia. And my daughter also caught strep throat, so we ended up having to take them from the city we're in to uh, another city to the children's hospital because they don't have a qualified hematologist in our city or anywhere nearby to specialize uh, in the studies of hematology enough to treat them uh, when it comes to their sickle cell. So we had to take our sick children an hour away by ambulance um, from one hospital to another, and we had to take two separate ambulances. And every single doctor and every single nurse were white people. So I'm, I'm automatically on alert anyway, thanks to being less confused. Um, I, I did notice particularly that one of the doctors, I swear I've never heard anyone use the word fair in a conversation more time, like almost every other response she said was fair enough. Yes, that is fair. It got to the point where her only response was the word fair. Um, I thought that was quite interesting, but um, what, what really bothered me was that my daughter was being to be less sick than my son was. She's three, he's four. Um, so they, they said that she was ready to go home a day earlier, but they were going to send my son home as well. But she started developing uh, another high fever. So uh, his mother and I elected to have them keep him for an extra day. But I actually felt like they were trying to rush him out of the hospital, and I don't know, maybe uh, you know, black babies cost less uh, kind of thing going on there. But uh, we don't do vaccinations. We've chosen over the um, the last few years to treat their sickle cell with uh, natural, more natural remedies. And at first, 
when my son was about nine months old, he had a blood transfusion. He was suffering from many sickle cell crises. And that's, uh, the doctor was putting him on penicillin, and we was like, we're not going to keep giving him penicillin. And then this same doctor who we seen just this past week, um, the hematologist, back then he suggested that we try my son on an experimental drug called hydroxyurea, which is actually a cancer drug, but one of the side effects was that it helped produce fetal red blood cells. But it would have the child lethargic at times, slow to react sometimes, the child would seem out of it. There was no way we were going to put our nine-month-old, then nine-month-old child on that drug, so we elected to do, start doing more of our own research and looking at a natural uh, remedy. So we was finding uh, herbs and oils and things we concocted lotions and we used different types of spices in their foods. And my son hadn't had any crises all the way from nine months all the way now. He's four and a half. But then he caught the flu. His sister hadn't had any crises her entire life. But then it caught the flu. And now um, they both had to have partial blood transfusions while they were in the hospital. And it was at one of those times where I actually found myself in doubt as to my actions of uh, counter-racist parenting, wondering if I was even making the right decision as far as their health is concerned, but having this interaction with all these nurses and doctors and seeing how it's just business for them and they're not just patients, they're customers, um, I, I just feel, uh, I feel more confident in my actions and continuing to do things the way that we've chosen to do them. Um, but right now, you know, they're giving us follow-up appointments and things like that uh, to go back and see the hematologist. But uh, we're going to entertain that for a moment and before we just decide to go back to doing what we were doing and possibly be a little more careful about um, who we allow around our children because we think we know how they talk and flu. And um, so we're going to watch out for that. But, um, yeah, uh, that's, that's pretty much uh, my report um, is uh, just doing the best we can with what we have. And I just want to say to everyone who made it down to Florida, I uh, hope it's a constructive event for you guys, a constructive experience. I hope it remains so throughout. And hopefully no one is molested by security or any other uh, suspected racist on the way back. Uh, Thanks for letting me share, and I need my mind. Much obliged. Thank you so much uh, for sharing, sir, um, in Yame, Nebraska. Uh, I'm sorry that you've had to endure all of that uh, with your offspring. Uh, I've said consistent. I don't have children. That is an extraordinarily tough job like so many decisions you know just as you said so many of the choices that you have to make and being responsible for another life in a system of white supremacy and um feeling like i mean that alone feeling like they are rushing your child out of the hospital medical apartheid harriet washington 
another reason I don't have children. Uh, I am sorry. And then even that, like sometimes, I mean, you know, they can help and experimental drugs might do that. But even that I would, you know, like, is, is my child the guinea pig? Because they do that to but black babies cost less medical apartheid sometimes. So experiment on the niggers. Let's see what happens. Acres of skin, whole lot of books sentenced to science, whole lot of books. I could rattle off on that one. Uh, non Clemson grad uh, with us. Uh, he was with us in Virginia. Uh, good to hear from you, sir. Hey, how's everyone doing? This is Nan Clemson grad. I hope everyone is having a wonderful time at the retreat this weekend. Interestingly enough, for one of the members who came to the yoga retreat uh, for this weekend, we have a, uh, a monthly uh, catch-up over the phone and when I text him, he reminded me that he was at the college retreat this weekend. So we'll have to catch up after he returns. <laughs> but anyway, um, I was starting to hear about, um, I just, uh, me and my wife and a couple of friends just got back um, home. Otherwise, I would have called sooner. Uh, but anyway, I did hear the, um, the two people who spoke just previously. I'm definitely sorry to hear about the kids who got sick. Uh, recently, I went to the doctor for my annual physical, and I'm lucky enough to have a black male doctor as my um, my physician. And during my annual checkup, he did ask me if I wanted a flu shot, for which I declined. And he responded that he could not give flu shots away. For the most part, most people seem to be avoiding the flu sh- the flu shot, which I think is a good idea. Um, most people that I hear who actually take the flu shot, they always tell me that they get the flu, ironically enough. Um, I do have one quick story. It happened this week for work. Um, there was a former councilman who wanted to meet, uh, meet with me because of a project that he's working on, allegedly. And he has a real bad habit of basically usurping people's time, including mine. And he said that he wanted to drop by my office um, to talk about a project that he was working on, even though we already had had a, um, a conversation, I think, previous uh, week before about the same thing, nothing had physically changed um, about the project, but he still wanted to come in and have a conversation with me. Um, he didn't say exactly when he was coming in, so I personally didn't wait around for him. Um, I went to a late lunch hoping I would miss him, and I thought I actually did. But I, I, I was in my office. I, think, um, I was standing up looking at a um, looking at the whiteboard in my office because I was working on something, and then he just appeared out of nowhere like he likes to do. Um, he said he had a couple of questions for me. He even articulated that in the no, I sent him an email answering questions that he put in the email, and then he requested that he could meet with me. And I said, before you come meet with me. Is there something that is not clear to you so I can prepare for whatever meeting you would like to have with me so I can have whatever answers you need? He never responded to that. He just simply said, I will simply come and drop by your office. So anyway, he gets to talking with me um, and saying a whole bunch of nothing. And the first thing I do after a couple of sentences, excuse me, is I ask him, do you have a question for me? He responds that, uh, well, before I ask my question, there's a couple of things I want to let you know before I ask my question. So he goes on again for a couple more sentences, wasting my time showing me stuff on his phone that I did not ask to see. And then the second time I asked him the question, 
do you have a question for me? It was at this moment he straight out admits that he did not have a question for me. And then um, after it was made clear that he was just there wasting time, he turns his attention to a couple of diplomas on my office wall um, from um, all the uh, you know, education I have been granted in this society. And uh, he comments on, you know, my education and how he talked about, talked to his wife about who he was coming to see because of the project he was working on. Um, after, um, it, it took about five minutes for him to come into my office, for him to leave after that whole fiasco of him wasting my time. After that, at that moment, I decided to make sure that situation never happened with him or any other person again. I took all my diplomas off my wall and I brought them home. And that is the end of my story. Oh, he snatched the credentials off the wall. I hadn't even thought about that. I said, you know, no decorations for a long time, but like, wow, he snatched. We, and this isn't just some old schmo that they plucked off the streets, you know, out of a cardboard box. We got valedictorian. Uh, here and, eh, man, time and energy they waste so much of our time and energy with nothing and question you can cut through a whole lot of that question and he even lied well i'm gonna get to my question i'm gonna get to my question but wait a minute did you and you want to see this look at my phone here and that look at that you haven't seen anything like that look at that oh yes my question well actually i don't really have a question it's just it's amazing they got a negro like you in the office here all these degrees I don't even not even supposed to have reading niggers in South Carolina anywho uh, other folks uh, with a co- oh I did want to get in the food the food that was so important uh, our previous caller non Clemson grad and then uh, in Yame where he said the food that he was giving his offspring to help with their health condition that is so critical the way that we look at food, viewing your food as your medicine. I think that's in uh, Elijah Muhammad's uh, How to Eat to Live and quite a few others have said that. View your food as your medicine. Really, and I mean, think about that. Every time you sit down to eat, is this nourishing my body? How is this nourishing me spiritually, physically? How is this building me up so that I can have more vitality to go about the business of solving the problem? I don't think chicken nuggets does that. I don't think anything on the menu at McDonald's does that. I can call. I don't think any those Seven Eleven hot dogs. I used to eat those by the barrel. I don't think that uh, they they help you in that process. I could be wrong. Uh, any final comments, folks? Need to get in thirty seconds. I will assume folks are good. Toronto, May twenty one. To May 24, 2020, 660. Chef Nadira already said she's down to hop the border. Get your passport, vegan food, doing some yoga. Looking forward to it. May 21 through the 24th spring. We would technically be out of the country for Memorial Day weekend. Technically. Uh, You can email thoughts, questions, comments 
Uh, we will be back later in the week, hopefully. Uh, we'll have safe travels, everyone. Uh, we'll enjoy our time here and then head back uh, full of yummy, delicious eats over these days and really stretched, feeling good from some yoga away from all that cold weather. It was 33 degrees when I left Seattle, 70 when I touched down here in Florida. Brilliant decision. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Keep that brain computer working in optimal condition so that we can quickly, efficiently solve the problem. In addition to being sober, let's be buckled up every time we are in a vehicle, passenger or driver. Let's do all that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers. Badge or no, if you are driving, Mr. M. Han DC, excellent model. You are not on the cell phone if you are driving. Again, trying to minimize our contact with the Amber Geigers, Daniel Holtzclaws of the world. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim Your brother problem. You're a victim uh, i'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my condition. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.